You've been doing this for quite a while. Yes. Uh, the YouTube channel, uh, Chitesh, I started that in 2020. Um, I thought it was in, an interesting idea to do book summaries of books that I got a lot of value from. And sure. I see other people doing summaries of them. But and not that they're bad. They're, there's a lot of very good videos on some of these books, but they tend to be kind of condensed. It's just one video, you know, short video of just main bullet points. And I thought, well, why not extract it out and do it chapter by chapter and maybe get a little more detailed. And from there, you know, I did that for a couple of years and then branched off to, into uh, a podcast where I started doing interviews of local authors to this area but um, where I envision it going is doing more interviews with you know people like yourself and really branching out into a lot of different as aspects those are kind of my goals <laughs> well books was I like the channel itself only because I'm a book reader myself I'm old-fashioned so I got mm -hmm. like instead of like ebooks so I have a you can't see it here but there's like a small uh, plastic tub but it's all filled with books Mm -hmm. um, I like to have a book in my hand and, and read it. I don't know. I'm old fashioned like that. And then take notes. I have like notebooks. I, I, you, I buy a notebook whenever I get a book because I write notes. Um, I check for references to see what I'm learning is, you know, factually, historically accurate. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm very anal with that. Like, <laughs> I, I don't know, but um, especially in this field of 9-11, you'll see uh, the horrifying, glaring reality of, really, really ridiculous theories that mm -hmm. have absolutely decimated conversation and rational discourse, which has basically in, paralyzed the truth movement to the point where now it's a joke in the public eye. And I came very late, you know, um, regarding viral media mm -hmm. um, because I didn't like my voice. I said, no one's going to listen to me. I sound like a, you know, B-rate gangster movie character or something. <laughs> And I don't like my accent, but I found out that, um, you know, by doing that, uh, you know, it didn't really matter what I sounded or or looked like, but that the information was accurate. To me, that's more important than anything. And um, that's what I try to do anyway. So uh, that's why I, I built up the channels that, that were, you know, to the current day. It took a while, but, um, you know, it's I'm not looking for popularity or or money from it. I, I feel it's a, a duty of a private citizen to inform other private citizens of what, you know, of information. You know, nice. So that's why I, I did it in the beginning to begin with. So I'm surprised you even know who I am because I'm so like <laughs> obscure, you know, so I, I try, I tend to keep it that way too. Mm -hmm. I think it's hypocritical when you look at it, when I think about it, you want to get more people. So you have to be out there, but I don't want to bring attention of, like the crackpots. So I'm very careful who wants to talk with me and stuff. So when I felt when you uh, reached the extension of it, I was like, why does this guy want to talk to me? He's, you know, he's into like uh, reading books and stuff like that. I, mm -hmm. I, I don't know how he found me. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, um, I'm very thankful you did. I, that is a really interesting story. I, I can't even remember. And really quick before going on, um, Hi, my name is Chris. This is Cheetash, and we've started hey. things off. Um, Adam Fitzgerald, uh, thank you very much for doing this. Um, I had to continue on that thought. 
I had found you, I think just on a random, as many things I find on YouTube, just a random search of, you know, things surrounding September 11th. And I think it was uh, two or three years ago um, that I came across some of your videos. Um, Instant subscribe. And I've been, I mean, kind of the rest is history. I've been um, following you ever since then. And I think you've provided a lot of value in the content that you create. And um, I, I actually didn't even know you had a, a blog until that, um, before we started the 19, we were talking about your article on the 1993 uh, World Trade Center attack. Um, so that, yeah, that's kind of how I came about your work. Um, really quick, when I was just curious, when you tell people uh, what you do or what, uh, or when you tell people like, oh, yes, I have a YouTube channel. What do you normally say that you write about? Like, how do you exactly phrase it? Do you just say, hey, I'm a 9-11 researcher, or do you go into more detail than that? No, I, I don't. I don't want to scare away potential followers. Or yeah. um, it's, the, it's actually the intricate details that basically worry people because of the expansive nature of the topic itself. Uh, usually... Um, I'll, I'll 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 explain it in the way I told my coworker. She how she uh, knows what I do is basically um, I told her that I am a geopolitical 9/11 researcher and scientist, and um, I basically tell her where to go to find my stuff, and and I want to hear her feedback. Mm -hmm. So I don't tell them really too much. I just give them a little bit, and I want them to make up their own minds uh, what they see and. Uh, possibly learn from my channel. And in the process of doing that, I'm giving more freedom to the person instead of just uh, giving them an, 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 an earful of like authoritative directions and uh, details that could basically scare away somebody. Oh, wow, it, that involves all that. I did, you know, basically, you know, people are pressed for time. I'm not. I'm single. I don't have children. But people who have families and people who have, um, you know, uh, don't have much time in their hands, basically want to learn as much as that window affords them as possible. And so I have to basically uh, make it sound to where, all right, yeah, I could get you to the door, but you'll have to walk through it in the time allotted afforded to you. So what do I do is basically give them just the minutiae details and then let them traverse on their own. It really depends on the person how much uh they want to delve into some people don't have um like i like i said the time before to me so i can just go on and on and on but mm -hmm. by basically going up to the average person and basically saying yeah hey listen i study middle east foreign policy middle east culture radical fundamentalism the all of a sudden now the person goes like all right that's you know it's too much mm -hmm. and they're, you automatically uh, lost the person before you even uh, found them to the door. So that's what I usually do. I give them the very minutia basics and let them make the decision how far they want to go. Do you get a lot of people that ask you, you know, it's 2000, now it's 2023, you know, September 11th happened, 2001, it's been 20 plus years. Do you get people asking you like, like, why are you still researching this? What more can we learn from this event that happened so long ago now? Yes, I get this uh, now more than ever because of the, the time period we're in. Mm -hmm. 
And um, I wish I started my channel 10 years ago. I would have had more attention to it, but better late than never. But I'm not doing this for popularity, actually. I knew going into this subject when I opened up Viral Media back in 2017 that I was coming very late. Mm -hmm. And uh, But I do it only because um, when I hear, for example, the phone call of Kevin Cosgrove, who is located in the North Tower on the 108th floor, and you can hear the horrifying screams of that phone call when the roof starts caving in on him and the tower collapses. And I'm trying, what I'm trying to do with my minuscule channel at best is try to raise, raise awareness with the public consciences about the actual conspiracies involved with this crime and the information that is actually not public to you or not made available to you in the way it should be by the uh the federal government or 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 legacy media there's a mixture of both worlds um i tend not to go with what they call the official narrative whatever that is uh i i always ask people what the official narrative is and i get various answers to it so i always ask that and also, I don't cater to the more ridiculous theories attributed to it, which is basically hurt, uh, say, the 9-11 truth movement in the public consciousness when people say, for example, that there were no planes in the sky or that the hijackers are still alive. Uh, there's various ridiculous theories. And what this does basically just caters to a small fringe popularity, but also dissuades from having anybody else want to do anything with it because of the ridiculous nature involved with it because they already generalize and say, wow, that's what the 9-11 truth movement's about. So it basically hurts the truth movement in the public in the public eye. And so what I try to do is bring back a lot of sensibility by just providing information. In fact, it could be any point in history um, that every person on the face of this earth has a duty to basically um, inform the public about what is right and what is wrong, what's moral and what's unsound. And you would hope that everybody or the, the most of everybody would basically agree with this perception. But unfortunately, it's not, especially with 9-11. Basically, you have two competing parties, and that is a uh, almost like the debunkers and truthers war. The debunkers generally go by the very basic official narrative story where the truthers go on um, the fringe aspect of the truth movement uh, basically pertain to the more ridiculous theories. And they have the biggest voices. And so this actually reflects to them to the outside. And when they see this, the public basically say, well, it's a mess. I don't want nothing to do with it. If we had a lot of people basically that just catered to their uh, outside of their own biases and worldviews and just report the facts, the information, we wouldn't be having this problem. In fact, we wouldn't be having most of much problems that we face today. And so yeah, I try to be as unbiased, unblemished, undeterred in regards to reporting information. In fact, I'm very bland. That's why I don't I'm not I'm not sexy enough to the public, <laughs> but I'm just right for certain people to basically say, all right, you know, this guy, hopefully that's what I'm seen to be. I, I don't know what I am to the public, but I'm hoping that's the view that they take me that, oh, this guy, you know, he's straight edge, he's reputable, and 
That's what I strive for. I strive for uh, the victims of 9-11, and I strive for informing the public, uh, which is my my duty to do so. In speaking of information, because I had reached out to you, oh gosh, I, um, it was over a month ago, and I, if you remember, I had mentioned I, I'd like some time to like research myself. Um, mm-hmm. Pretty much... My research consisted of um, the material that you present on your um, Medium page and your YouTube channel, as well as, and I have a copy here, of the 9-11 Commission report that I I purchased. Um, is Is it bad that that is really like the only written source that I used in my research or are there other sources that are better or like additional sources besides the commission report for people who research this topic? There's very few, but, um, the one book that possibly could basically, uh, be the devil's advocate to the report would be, uh, the book that I consider the the best book I've ever come across. And that's Paul Thompson's book called the nine 11 terror timeline. And basically, all it is is basically a huge uh, text of of news articles in chronological order. So what Paul Thompson did was the right thing. He basically allowed for the chronological, for the the written document in history to basically tell the story about what took place in the days before 9-11, on 9-11, and after 9-11, without any of his thoughts and opinions of his own. It's a very unique book in that regards. And I'm so fortunate that was the very first book I've read only because it was so big. And the 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 the, um, the, prep, the face to it is very glaring. It's red. It has Bush, Obama's face, has everything on there, Osama bin Laden's face on there. So yeah, it, it, walked, it really struck to me. And then when I, I remember buying it in Borders in, um, in Nevada, Las Vegas, and uh, basically, I read the whole book within less than a month. I was engrossed with it because it basically gave me the idea to basically look at these events and see 9-11 as a puzzle. So basically, you go with, with every with every incident in history, there's always a beginning. And in order to move forward, you have to go backwards. So basically, that's what I did. And I, I took that model for myself as well. I didn't want to be Paul Thompson. So I took his idea and basically wanted to um, uh, grow on it, uh, which is probably what he would like for the public to do anyway. And so I did. And basically, I'm not as thorough as him. I consider him the best in the world, along with Nelson Martin's DJ Thermal Detonating, he goes by. Um, and people like Ray Nolowiski and and, and um, Kevin, uh, um, um, Kevin Fenton. Uh, there, there are very few others, uh, but there's not many. There's not many books out there I would recommend, but that would be the book to read. There's also another book that was written by Philip Sheenan, and it was called The 9-11 Omissions Report. I have not read that. It's in my Amazon basket, but that is the book that basically would be contradictory to the 9-11 Commission Report. But I want to make something very clear is that certain people in the fringe movements will basically tell you that the whole book that you have there is a lie. Um, but when I become very anal with them and say, well, did they get the date right? Well, yeah. Okay, then the whole book isn't a lie. The 9-11 Commission Report isn't basically 
a lie or a factual truth. It is an incomplete report, as I would say. I have read the report. I have. I'm only the. I think I'm the only person in the world to upload the 9/11 Commission report and the Joint House inquiry on my channel. The only other, wow. I think, uh, uh, website that has it in full is C-SPAN. But I'm the only person to upload both. And what I did was basically, it took me a year to edit both of those and basically put them in like five to seven minute intervals because nobody wants to see a three hour video. So that's how long these videos are. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're like three weeks, you know, commission report was, um, um, I believe it was uh, two, uh, two years, almost two years. So I had to edit all that to basically where it could be comfortable for a person watching it. So I basically took uh, like a panel member asking a question to a certain person. And basically that took me seven months. It took me another six months wow. to upload it all. And, um, you know, yeah, that's what I, that's what I did. But yeah, in regards to the 9-11 commission report, um, I wouldn't tell anybody that it's, yeah, it, the whole thing is right. It's not, but it's not one big lie either. There's a lot of truth to it, but there's a lot of holes. There isn't anything that's really made up. Some parts are fictional, uh, but some parts are missing a lot. In fact, a lot is missing. And so I call it the 9-11 incomplete report. And that comes from the panelists themselves. I mean, Thomas mm -hmm. Kane, the co-chair, um, uh, 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 Richard Benvenisti uh, was a panelist. Basically, they came out and said that uh, um, we didn't have all the information available to us. And also, we didn't get much of the truth out of the way of, say, like, for example, NORAD, the uh, military commanders, at the Nor Nor Northern Command, uh, Northeast uh, section needs. Uh, basically, they gave like a, for example, a false timeline uh, that didn't match up with the FAA, for example. And, you know, that was a big issue, huge. You know, why would they give us this false timeline? So you know what I'm saying? So, there is, so there's a lot of information that's missing, more so missing than there is more untruths and truths regarding to the book. And uh, keeping on this topic, were they like pressed for when they were congregating, making uh, the commission report? Was there a certain timeline deadline? Like, were they pressed for time? And did, did that have any sort of factor in um, being incomplete, so to speak? Yeah, I would say, sorry about that. But yeah, I would say that that's true. Now, um, at first, the Bush administration basically said that um, they would not actually support this uh, inquiry. And what happened was um, there was a lot of pressure from the 9-11 Steering Committee, which is basically uh, a committee of family members and activists that got together and pushed the Bush administration to open up a congressional inquiry. Then when the pressure became so strong, um, it basically, um, uh, they, they pressured, uh, they, they, uh, they created this, this commission under pressure. And at first, uh, they weren't getting enough funding. And then when they got, I think it was $3 million to create this commission, um, basically, they gave them a deadline to do it. And the deadline really acted as the, the State Department's pressure point saying, all right, we'll give you, we'll, we'll give you the minimum uh, funding and efforts as possible in, in helping along this commission, but you got a date and then it's over. And so what this did was, was basically – rushed the commission, which was, you know, created in uh, three months time. And basically they had about a year and a half to basically go through 
millions of documents. And the Nine Eleven Commission report read about five million documents. It's huge. Wow. Um, so there was a lot of documentation. But on the other hand, on the other hand, there's probably double that amount or triple that amount that they didn't get to read that's it locked away forever in the National Archives for the next 30, 40 years. And that will probably the next fight uh, for the next 20, 30 years now will be release of documents. So um, but by then, you know, you'll have no interest with 9-11, just like JFK. And a lot of the people that were involved with these cover ups and probably malfeasance, even worse, uh, will long be dead. But um, yeah, there was a pressure, a lot of pressure from the Bush White House to basically say, yeah, we'll give you the date. We'll give you limited funding, limited time and pressure, uh, limited time and effort in completing this report. And what you got in your hand now is basically a rush job. And uh, there was a lot of stuff that they had to go through and just didn't have the time to do it. One of the things that I was surprised uh, when reading the 9-11 Commission report was the that they included some history like in the beginning chapters, uh, especially with uh, the Soviet-Afghan War. And I know earlier we were talking about your article on uh, the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, and I really liked how in the beginning of your article that you included some historical perspective on that event. And I wanted to ask you about that event uh, the when um, when the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan and I, I wasn't alive during this time, and I was just wondering why, why would the Soviet Union even go into Afghanistan? Like, what sort of, what was in it for them to do that? Well, there's various factors as to why they invaded, but one of the reasons was that uh, Afghanistan was going through a tumultuous period between. Um, being a secular uh, power and one that caters to a religious uh, majority, Pashtuns are religious uh, and so are native, native uh, Arabs. Uh, Afghans basically in the 1960s and 70s were going through a modern day period of uh, Arab nationalism that permeated throughout the Middle East throughout the 1950s and 60s, which was basically uh, highly influential through President Gamal Abdel Nasser, the president of Egypt, who wanted to revolutionize the Arab world into a, a major power that could basically be um, the equivalent to Great Britain and the United States. And in between, you have the Cold War powers, Soviet Union, for example, that are competing world powers to uh, the West, for example, that would be Great Britain, and the United States. And so with this comes a, a very volatile uh, relationship. And so Afghanistan was basically a, a, a battleground in between. And so the Soviets basically saw an extension of the empire and basically wanted to um, extend into Afghanistan, but not militarily at first, through the universities, through their businesses, uh, by supplanting um, any type of worldview with communism and socialism. And this actually worked in their favor, actually. There wasn't any type of you know, religious fundamentalist extremists uh, existing at this time. Any type of extremist was through the Muslim Brotherhood, which was basically being subjugated by the uh, Arab nationalists like Gamma Abdel Nasser in Egypt and imprisoned for long periods of time and tortured. But nobody really heard of these groups. And 
you know, basically they were a very silent voice. But after a while, the United States saw what was happening and basically uh, wanted to put a halt or a stop into this um, extension. Uh, India, for example, and Pakistan were worried that they would be next because they're neighboring countries. And so a lot of this pressure came back to the United States and led by uh, President Carter through his um, national security advisor, Zygmunt Brzezinski, basically warned that uh, the Soviet Union could threaten into uh, the Arab world and threaten the largest untapped oil reserves in the world, which was the Caspian Sea, which is north of Iran. And they basically put an outline. In fact, Brzezinski would write a book, which is influential with foreign policy at the time, which was called the, the Grand Chessboard. And basically what he outlined was that the United States had to be the sole superpower in order to expand its empire. But in order to do that, it had, been, it had to stop the influence of the Soviet Union in the Arab world and starts with Afghanistan. And so the United States basically drawing up plans on how to commit um, to not just a covert operation, but it had to go and involve Pakistan, for example, because Pakistan is the only country that basically would allow or Afghans would allow for uh, a foreign non-governmental organizations or for official government organizations like the CIA to uh, put weapons and funding in the hands of of militants, because throughout the 1970s, the Soviet Union saw that there was a religious minority in Afghanistan that was pushing back. And this led to violent blood clashes, violent, bloody clashes with um, the Pashtun minority and the Soviet and the communists that were uh, um, influential in the region. And there was a lot of there were tens of thousands of people that were killed in this battle. And the Soviet Union government basically saw this as an affront. And they basically uh, replaced some of these um, leaders that were um, involved with the uh, Afghan government. Um, Hafizullah Amin is one. Barbak Kamal is another. And basically a lot of these uh, Soviet uh, leaders basically could not um, culturally uh, affiliate with the the pastoral minorities. And so they basically tried to change the culture, um, allowing for women to go to university, allowing for women to read, allowing uh, not allowing men to grow their beards long, uh, to read the Quran in public. All this came into it's, it's basically what happened was a huge cultural war happened and it got the attention of the Arab world around the world. And he said, uh, we basically need to do something. We need to get rid of the Soviet influence in, in the country. And so basically there was a, a conference in 1985, 86 um, that uh, involved the Arab Republic. And they basically voted unanimously to intervene for allow the Arab world to basically intervene and, and uh, fight on the behalf of the Afghan, uh, the Afghan, Afghan people. And the United States saw this and basically circumvented their, their plans, their covert operation into a CI operation, which was basically called Operation Cyclone. And this is the largest, most successful CI operation to date. And it involved, um, I think, $2 billion worth of military aid funding in training these Afghan Mujahideen fighters that basically were not just involving Afghans. The majority of the fighters were Afghans, but 10% of the fighting force were, were foreign Arabs, Arabs from all around the world, United States, uh, Southeast Asia, uh, Saudi Arabia, 
Turkey, you name it, they were in it. And this brought in all types of people. And what this did was basically gave an excuse for countries like Egypt and Syria who were imprisoning these extremists from the Muslim Brotherhood and other groups to basically open up their jail cells and allow them to be free to enter the war because what they wanted in return was for them to be killed and not go back to the country they originated from. That was their hopes anyway. But that's that's how that war began. And um, it, it, it there's a lot of fingers in that pie. So mm-hmm. you basically can't just point to one uh, country and basically say that's what happened. But it's a very complex situation. But uh, that's the gist of it. Do you think from that conflict, that's kind of where we we get the the radical um, like fundamentalism and these terrorist groups? Is it is it kind of birth from that conflict? Well, it's the it's the um, the catapult, I would say, of radical extremists. But there was a buildup in order to make it more sense. There was in, in throughout the 1970s. Uh, Saudi Arabia was becoming a uh, huge monolith in the Arab world. And this is what was called the oil boom for the country. The United States basically began a partnership with the country in 1938. uh, I'm sorry, 1932, uh, which basically um, expanded even further when the United States uh, began to regulate the oil market and trillions of dollars of uh, U.S. money began flowing through these oil reserves. And so uh Saudi Arabia is their, their monarchy itself, the kingdom, which basically compromises of maybe five to seven thousand people involved with this kingdom, basically began flush with money. Uh some of these princesses were, you know, in the billions of dollars. And um basically they began the country itself is created under a a dual premise. One is a military uh, committee, the government itself, and the other is called Wahhabism. Uh, Saudi Arabia was created in 1744, and it was actually called the Emirate of Daria. And there were two peoples that that uh, created that state, and it was called Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab, who was a nomad uh, from the Wahhab family that created this uh, very heretical sect called Wahhabism. And this basically aligns with the school branch of of, uh, of uh, Sunni Islam. And a lot of the majority of the Sunni uh, population condemned this branch because it basically doesn't adhere to the tenets of the Prophet Muhammad. I won't get into that. It's a very complex issue. But uh, but when this uh, and Ibn Saud is the uh, leader of the military committee. And so Ibn Saud made a pact with Ibn uh, Muhammad Ibn Abdul Wahhab saying that um, together we'll create the first Arab state. And it was the imminent Dunia. But in the 1920s, uh, another uh, leader called Ibn Saud uh, basically uh, took over the cities of Najid and Hijaz from the Ottomans and the, um, the Khazarites and destroyed them and basically uh, created uh, the Emirates into one country, and that is Saudi Arabia, what we know of today. But those two precedents of the military uh, government and the religious committee, the Wahhabi, the Wahhabi Islam uh, school of thought, they coexisted together as one. It's a very unique situation. And so throughout, it took 40, 50 years. But now with the Wahhabiites basically governing the uh, religious and moral aspects of Saudi Arabia, 
with the money coming in through the oil boom, it basically expanded on these ideas. And so these ideas came out of the country and basically permeated into the Arab subculture of former Arab national states that we talked about previously. Countries like Syria, Egypt, Lebanon, Jordan, uh, um, Afghanistan. These were countries that didn't have any religious fundamentalism. They were basically countries that tried to modernize through the Arab uh, nationalist ideology. But the United States and the West saw that as a threat, basically tried to subvert it any way possible. So they allowed for the Saudi Arabian government to basically allow for the spread of Wahhabism to permeate these Arab countries. And then when 1979 came about, that was the start of the the war between the Soviets and, and Afghanistan. Well, that wasn't the only incident that took place there. You had the Iranian Revolution led by the Shia-controlled uh, mullahs in Iran. And you also had a, the Grand Mosque seizure in Saudi Arabia, where the, where the religious fundamentalist led by Mohammed al-Qatabi, who basically saw himself as the next Mahdi, the next appearance of uh, the prophet appearance, and basically took over the one of the largest mosques in, in, in the country and basically um, forced the kingdom to basically um, stop allowing for Western ideals to influence the culture and go back to, you know, being a totally uh, religious fundamentalist state through Wahhabism. And all this played a factor and all of this birth, uh, the, the groups that we see today, groups like Abu Sayyaf in the Philippines, uh, Jemma Islamiyah in Indonesia, um, Boko Haram in North Africa, and of course, Al-Qaeda, uh, which is now only existing in the Arabian Peninsula. But at the time, all these groups you never heard of and nobody else has. But what they didn't realize was that through the very influential Saudi princes and through Operation Cyclone, what happened was when you have a bunch of money coming in from, say, the United States and Great Britain and uh, uh, the West, and all these billions of dollars go through military aid and and funding and training of these religious fundamentalists that come from all these countries that basically um, gave like all these fundamentalists a new uh, ingredient to basically a newfound vigor to basically extend outside of Afghanistan and try to uh, create a caliphate of sorts. And so whether the United States basically realized that or not, but they probably saw um, the enemy as, say, the old adage, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So in other words, we'll give these religious mullahs and individuals and groups all the funding they need to get rid of a superpower, which is the bigger threat. And so when the Soviet Union um, uh, retreated in 1989, whether the United States knew it or not, um, we'll leave, I'm leaving that door open. Uh, all these people went back home to their home countries with the newfound vigor, newfound ideology, and the training and funding that they received and went back and created their own groups and uh, basically um, uh, supported and propagated this Wahhabi ideology back in the United States, back in Southeast Asia, back in Great Britain. And sooner or later, it created a bomb of these groups. And um, most notably, the biggest victim all was the United States and you know, we could get into that uh, in in time. In uh, one of one of these people, um, Osama bin Laden, um, what? And I know he was um, Osama bin Laden was Saudi Arabian, um, 
when did do we know or i guess a better question did he have a large role in that soviet afghan war that we know of um no in fact not arabs only like i said arabs all basically they, they made up approximately 10 percent of the fighting force afghans did not like arabs and but they only allowed them to enter the war because according to the old afghan adage arabs are good only for death uh so they basically saw them as a means to an end and if they're willing to fight on cause of Afghanistan, so be it. Mm -hmm. But the uh, bin, bin Laden basically didn't have a very big uh, influence in the war. He's actually known throughout uh, only because that here's a guy who comes from a very, very influential family that is not involved with the monarchy, but is probably the most powerful family in the Saudi Arabian subculture that's not affiliated with the kingdom. And that comes from their construction magnate called the bin Laden, Saudi Bin Laden Group created by Mohammed bin Laden in, uh, I think it was the 1950s or 1940s. I don't, uh, don't quote me on the, the date of the year they started. But they are the ones that basically um, redesigned Mecca and Medina. They are involved with large-scale uh, buildings of roads and projects in the kingdom itself. And uh, throughout many decades, they were the leading construction company afforded to them by the kings of like King Fahd. And, and um, uh, uh, other kings that pre previous to King Fahd himself. Um, and King Khalid was another. So basically, Osama bin Laden uh, lost his father in an airplane accident, of all things. Uh, and so what happened was bin Laden was without his father, and he was without direction early in his life. And so when the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan began, he saw a calling. And so there was... Um, uh, an imam, a preacher that was at university of um, uh, King Ibn Saud University, King Abdulaziz University, where uh, uh, bin Laden was actually studying um, engineering and basically saw this uh, preacher preaching. And his name was Abdullah Yusuf Azam. And he would have a huge influence in the Saudi war later on. And bin Laden was enamored by him and was invigorated by his oral dictation of jihad. And so bin Laden saw the Afghan war as something that a calling to him. And so he offered to the Arab world because the Arabs were not getting any type of real um, backing from the Afghan warlords there. Afghan warlords are very notorious for being very culturally bedridden to their own specific sects. But there were two Afghan warlords that allowed Arabs into their ranks and they were Abdul Rasul Sayyaf and Jalaluddin Haqqani. And Jalaluddin Haqqani created another group later on that was an offshoot of the Taliban called the Haqqani Network. But Abdul Rasul Sayyaf was one of the biggest warlords in Afghanistan, only next to Gulbuddin Hekbatar. And so he had a wide range influence. And throughout his influence, he saw the benefits of the Arabs and saw the benefits of jihad to Abdul Azam. And so he invited Abdul Azam to come into the war and basically influence the Arab world to come more people would be more um, beneficial for the fight. And so Abzam basically invited bin Laden and bin Laden came to Afghanistan through Pakistan and basically was told by Abdul Azam and another uh, fighter named Abdullah Anas, an Algerian fighter who was fighting the government in, in Algeria through a civil war. And so both of them went to bin Laden and said, we need um, money to create 
an organization, a building, if you will, that basically will accommodate this influx of Arabs to train them, to properly give them food and money and lodging uh, for the fight against the Soviets because the Afghans are not helping in this venture. So bin Laden basically agreed to this idea and poured in millions of dollars of his family's construction company for which he was a part of and basically created what was called the Afghan Services Bureau. In Arabic, it's called notoriously the Maktab al-Kidabat. And so it started out as one building in Pakistan. Then it became two. And all of a sudden, it became 10, 11 buildings. And what this did was invite all these Arabs from all these countries to basically come and train and learn through the educational process. And this idea of these Afghan Services Bureau, basically, they had like a media committee, a religious committee, a... Um, um, a widow's committee, a military committee. There's a lot of committees involved with this. And this idea became bigger and bigger. And so the CIA, through Operation Cyclone, sort of benefited of this. And they started putting in their money involved with this program, Operation Cyclone, through Pakistan. So what they didn't want was for the, the Soviets to know that the United States was involved with the funding of these people. So they had to do it very covertly. Operation Cyclone was a covert operation. It wasn't known. But then... Um, what happened was is that you're giving all this money and funding to all these religious fanatics. And basically, um, that's this created a, a network bigger. And so Bin Laden, how he became notorious is something that's really not known to the public. And I'll tell you, uh, there was no Arab camps in Afghanistan. And what this did was Bin Laden wanted to create an Arab camp that basically created just for Arabs. And he had to get the the uh, approval of Abdul Rasul Sayyaf, and he did. And so this Arab camp is called Al-Masada, M-A-S-D-A-H. And in from the Arabic, it's called the Lion's Den. And what they did was, it was a very small camp that catered to 20 fighters, 15, 20 fighters, created uh, specifically for small arms combat, guerrilla warfare, building bombs, building uh, how to train with small arms fire, AK-47s, and whatnot. Uh, this camp became bigger in time. And so a lot of these Arabs that were training at this camp would become the founding members of Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda, which is basically really misconstrued, according to certain fringe truthers. They say it's the base, it's a database, it's not really a group. Well, no, the base, it's, it's Arab, Al-Qaeda translated from the English called the base, but the base meaning the base of the training base, Al-Masada camp, because the people that were involved with Al-Masada, like Mahmoud, Mahmoud Salim, Abu Haraj al-Iraqi, Abu Hafs al-Masri, all these names that, you know, you never heard of and stuff. These are the people that created Al-Qaeda later on when bin Laden relocated to the Sudan. He invited that camp along with him as well as other Egyptians to come, and they created, uh, from al-Masad, they created al-Qaeda. So when the Afghan Services Bureau became so big, after after the war, the idea was, well, what do we do with the money, with the money and the funding and the training and all these people? What do we do? And so bin Laden, who is now influenced by another person named Dr. Ayman al-Zohari, who is actually a religious fundamentalist from Egypt, from a group called the Egyptian Islamic Jihad, who is fighting the government of, um, of um, Egyptian president that was assassinated. And I can't remember, um, uh, I forgot his name. Forgive me. 
Thank you. And worse than that, I'm 53. I have <laughs> amnesia. So <laughs> sorry about that. But yeah, thank you. Sadat. Yeah, so they were fighting the Sadat government. And they got expelled after Sadat was uh, assassinated and the government cracked down on these groups. And so the Egyptians uh, saw the fight in Egypt. And Dr. Ahmad Zawahiri, along with a lot of these Egyptian fundamentalists, uh, saw bin Laden's worth. And they saw the influence that he could bring all these millions of dollars that he could fund. And so they persuaded they uh, persuaded bin Laden to basically take over the uh, Maktab al-Kidamid office from Azam, who is the emir. And Azam basically was left out in the cold. And Azam was assassinated in 1989. But we don't know who killed him. And there's a lot of like potential possibilities about who killed him. But bin Laden um, became very influential because when he created that al-Basada camp, not to dissuade from the point, there was a fight. A very uh, big fight with Soviet Spetsnaz, their, their special forces, and this ragtag group of Arabs of maybe fifty fighters defeated approximately two hundred to two hundred fifty Spetsnaz soldiers with nothing more than AK forty-seven sticks and and small handguns. Wow! This wow. one battle reverberated throughout Afghanistan, even with the Afghans, and saw the potential worth of Bin Laden, and that's how. Bin Laden became such a big name in this war. It wasn't anything that he did. You know, basically, he did fight on the front lines once, and he always carries that rifle. You ever see that AK-47 next to him? It's supposedly it's from a uh, killed Russian uh, soldier, and he took the, the, the gun with him. But that's how Bin Laden became a big name in Afghanistan, was through that battle of of um, of al-Masada against the Spetsnaz soldiers. But that's not known in the public sphere, I learned that from a couple of books, one of them being Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, written by Ann Stemmerson, um, and um, Arabs at War in Afghanistan by Mustafa Hamid, uh, two very, uh, the best books on the uh, creation of Al-Qaeda and the Arab influence in Afghanistan in the world, I think. But um, that's how Al-Qaeda was created, and that's how Bin Laden became very a very big name. It was from that war and also the takeover of the Maktab al-Kidamat. That's how he became big. And now, why does Osama bin Laden, after the war is over, what causes him to uh, leave Afghanistan? And he goes to uh, Africa. Is it a uh, Sudan? Does he go to? Yeah, well, not not initially. After the war, he returns to Saudi Arabia. Okay. And at this time, the Iraq government under Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. And basically, Saudi Arabia saw... It, since they are a neighboring country, saw the potential that they were going to be next, and so they committed a um, they committed a uh, committee uh, created a committee in 19, uh, 1990 and basically uh, had all the heads of the military uh, and the intelligence uh, the, um, the intelligence committee involved, and so Bin Laden was actually called to this committee and basically offered an explanation to the res resolution and that he would get his Mujahideen, Arab Mujahideen fighters to fight against the Ba'athist army of Iraq. And the King Fahd was horrified at this idea of this, you know, very ragtag bunch of fighters fighting against the a standing army of Iraq and said, no, that's ridiculous. And so bin Laden, was still a dangerous individual, and he was put under house arrest. And his finances were frozen. His assets were frozen. His passport was revoked. And so according to Gerald Posner, a noted author 
um, basically, he basically laid a right that there was an there was a deal made in the uh, in the shadows, so to speak, between um, the uh, the directorate of the General Intelligence Directorate, the director himself, basically uh, Al Taraki, um, Prince Al Turkey, basically made a deal with Bin Laden and said, "We will unfreeze your assets and give you back the passport, but you have to, you know, leave the country." And so Bin Laden basically, that's just one story about how he left the country. So um, Bin Laden agreed. And the president of, of Sudan, which is the only country in the world, uh, conveniently, that didn't allow for foreign Arabs to show a passport to enter the country and live, uh, basically invited Bin Laden because he saw the money that Bin Laden was and Sudan's a very poor country and said, we'll let you live here. But, you know, could you help us out with reconstruction of roads and businesses? Bin Laden agreed. So Bin Laden brought his bunch from the al-Masada camp, the Egyptians from the Maktab al-Kidamat, and brought them over to Sudan. And in the process of building the infrastructure of Sudan, and he spent approximately 50 to $60 million of doing this, a lot of money. In the process, he began building this group under the influence of the Takfiris, which is uh, these uh, covert, these this group of, of Egyptian Muslims that are um, Dr. Ayman al-Zwahiri, Saeed Imam al-Sharif, Abu Hafsa al-Masri, all these Egyptian military, former military members and religious people that basically created what was called al-Qaeda. And they created this group. And what they wanted to do was basically create a jihad outside of Afghanistan toward the West. And basically, Dr. Ayman al-Zwahiri wanted to basically use that group and the funding to attack the government of Egypt. Bin Laden uh, basically wanted to attack the United States. But it was, um, you know, a clash of what would we do? So there was this ideology that was created by Muhammad Ibn al-Faraj. And he's an actually Egyptian Islamist from the group, the, the Egyptian Islamic Jihad. And he created a text called the Neglected Duty. And in this text, he created what was an outline of two enemies that he saw, the near enemy and the far enemy. The near enemy was the Egyptian government. And what he thought was feasible was that the Egyptian Islamists would take over the government and create an Islamic-only government of Egypt. And then in time, influence other neighboring Arab countries to where their Islamists would take over their governments and then take over one country at a time, creating a caliphate. The far enemy was the United States and Israel, also known as the West. And what after this create this caliphate would be created, this caliphate would then revigorate the old crusader Islamic generation of the early 12th and 13th centuries create a new crusade type of war and that this caliphate would then fight against the United States, Great Britain and Israel, what they considered the Yehud, which is Jewish and the uh, apostates of the United States and Great Britain. And so that would be the ultimate battle. It would be the near enemy first and the far enemy, but this would take a lot of time and it was time was not afforded to them. And so bin Laden rushed this and basically created, and when Faraj was arrested and executed for his role in Sadat's assassination, Dr. Ayman al-Zwahiri brought that idea to 
to bin Laden, and bin Laden implemented it. And instead of taking over the near enemy approach, he wanted the far enemy approach. Dr. Ayman al-Zahiri would also write a book himself, and it was called Knights Under the Prophet's Banner. And it was a, basically about eight or ten directives of what this group was basically about to do and what the Islamic community w- would need to do. And at the end was the far enemy approach, um, but he implemented that first and said we could fight on two fronts, the near enemy and the far enemy approach. And so bin Laden, well, when al-Qaeda was created, they didn't have any real enemy. Al-Qaeda was created to, to basically fight against the communists in Afghanistan. But when bin Laden and al-Swahiri took over the Maktab al-Khimah, took over the al-Masada camp, they basically created al-Qaeda and then later on implemented this idea to use this group, use the funding in the military that they received through Operation Cyclone and other governments, and basically fight against the West and force the West to become the near enemy first. So they wanted to conquer the United States first. And, and I don't need to tell you that this, of course, was a bad idea because basically backfired. There was no possible way that you know they could defeat the United States military in any possible way. But needless to say, they, they, did, they didn't try. So Al-Qaeda was created in the Sudan and uh, basically didn't get you know, much in the way of many recruits, not until they relocated to Afghanistan in 1996. And when they did, basically, uh, and we could talk about this in full if you want, uh, that's when the recruiting process be, really began. And uh, Al-Qaeda then created an enemy uh, to itself. And the enemy was the United States. And was that was the attack on the World Trade Center in 1993 this... Um, related to al-Qaeda, that this was their first attack on the um, uh, the far enemy that uh, you had mentioned, or the near enemy? Sure. This, I, I, it's tough to say, because al-Qaeda, when it was created, there was a couple of directives that needed to be followed. One was loyalty. In Arabic, it's called bayat. And so when somebody who joins this group, they fill out a form. There's actually a, a, there's a form to this uh, al-Qaeda group. It's not some ragtag bunch. It's actually following in the footsteps of the Maktab al Khidmat. There's other committees. And so there's, a, there's an organizational structure to this group. And it's a very, you know, very structural group. There's a military committee, a media committee, um, a religious committee called the Shura Committee. So they have committees so in the same way as the Maktab al Khidmat, as I, as I previously stated. And so when one, the first thing when you join Al Qaeda is you swear by Akta bin Laden. In other words, there's no loyalty to government. There's no loyalty to any other person besides bin Laden. The people involved with 93, none of those people ever met bin Laden. None of those people ever swore loyalty to bin Laden himself or met bin Laden. And so the participants like Ramzi Youssef, for example, who created the bomb, um, Mahmoud Abalima, um, Mohammed uh, Salome, um, and other people, Abdul Yassin, they were not part of Al-Qaeda, but they came from the Arab uh, fight through Afghanistan. They came through that to that period, uh, whether they were trained by the United States or Great Britain and Pakistan. Uh, I, it, I, I wouldn't disagree, but um, they're from that uh, after effect. They're from that uh, period. And so they got their training in military um, ideas and guerrilla training through, you know, a number of sources in Afghanistan that was involved um, in training them. 
And so they went back to the United States and they basically became radicalized under uh, this another Egyptian cleric that was affiliated with the um, religious fundamentalists in Egypt. And his name was Omar Abdel Rahman, also known as the Blind Sheikh. Unlike Dr. Ayman al-Zwahiri, Rahman was actually on a terrorist watch list. And he was on a global terrorist watch list. He was known throughout the world. He's also known as the Blind Sheikh. He's blind. And so what happened was he actually filed, just to give you a little bit of context, mm -hmm. he actually was um, filing for a U.S. visa at a consulate in Cairo, Egypt, while he's on a terrorist watch list. And you would think, all right, you know, this guy's not going to get a U.S. visa. Not only was he approved once, but he was approved three times. Wow. And while this was happening, in the consulate in Egypt, there were CIA officers dressed as consular officers that approved his visa all three times. And so he was he was under house arrest in Egypt. He actually was uh, he was taken out in the washer, uh, like a washing machine, uh, make believe that they're moving property off his house. And so he escaped the Egypt this way and he enters the United States on a full blown approved U.S. visa while on a terrorist watch list. Absurd. CIA would later claim in a New York Times article stating that we had no idea who he was and we had no idea he was on a watch list. So that means they give out U.S. visas to anybody. So anyway, he comes to the United States and immediately uh, begins influencing this member of a Brooklyn and New Jersey mosque. The New Jersey mosque is called the Al-Majid, Al-Masjid, Al-Islam mosque, and in Brooklyn, Al-Farouk. But the CIA has been involved with Al-Farouk mosque because upstairs from it was a place called the Al-Kifah Refugee Center. And that was the official building of the Maktab al Kemet, the only official building in the United States. There were other refugee centers in other parts of the United States, like Arizona, Detroit, but they didn't have a building, an actual building. This building was known to the CIA. They began funding money through this organization, began funding money through charities. And Rahman basically circumvented all this money instead of going through the rebuilding process of Afghanistan, now using that money to basically um, create uh, a, this religious fundamentalist group in Brooklyn, New York, through the Al Farouk Mosque. And so this group that's from Afghanistan, that's now in this mosque, and New Jersey as well, basically were the, the uh, elements of creating the bomb that was used in the World Trade Center in 1993. Um, here's a catch, though. Um, there, was any, there was an FBI informant. Uh, well, not an FBI informant, but he was also a New York Police Department informant as well. His name was Imad Salem, another Egyptian, by the way. Um, he basically embellished his record uh, through his handler, Nancy Floyd, an FBI uh, Cold War agent, and basically uh, said that he was a personal, um, personally involved with the uh, making of bombs and uh, the military. Meanwhile, he was just a chauffeur for a government official in Egypt. But nevertheless... He became Omar Abdel Rahman's highest priority in terms of uh, bodyguard, and so he was in the know on certain lot of on a lot of things. And Salem would travel with Omar Abdel Rahman throughout the United States, you know, going to preach at you know these uh, um, uh, at mosques all around the country, you know, trying to uh, you know radicalize all these um, former Afghan uh, jihad mujahideen to take action against the United States. And very few people noticed, very few people. And in the process, uh, one such notorious uh, Afghan Mujahideen fighter 
named El Said Nosser gave the idea to Imad Salem uh, about, uh, by the way, not to lose name, but El Said Nosser, uh, how he came into prominence was that he killed a, a radical, a very radical cleric, rabbi clerical, Rabbi Merikahana, who is um, the leader of the Jewish Defense League, which is a very Zionist offshoot, uh, this very radical fundamentalist Jewish group that was in New York at the time. And El Said Nusser shot him and killed him at the Marriott Hotel in Manhattan in 1990. And so he was captured, El Said Nusser, as he fled on foot. And while he was in prison, um, basically met with Imad Salem one day because Salem was visiting him because he took Rahman to visit him. And El Said Nusser told, um, uh, told Imad Salem, I heard you, you were a former military official that built bombs. And he said, yes. He goes, can you build bombs, a number of bombs? And what he wanted to do was bomb the United Nations, bomb the Jacob Jabbersville and the FBI headquarters, bomb the Brooklyn Bridge, George Washington Bridge, um, World Trade Center, and other Jewish neighborhoods as well. And so Imad Salem said, I could do this. And brought the, and then went back to the group and said, um, you know, I'm going to build bombs for this. And he had to report this back to the FBI. And the FBI said, oh, no, we can't allow you to do that. And then in the process, while he's building these bombs, the FBI said, the FBI went behind his back and replaced the blasting caps and powder with fake powder and blasting caps. Imad Salem found out and said, you're going to blow my cover and I'm going to get killed because I have family in Egypt and Rahman's you know, massive influence could kill my family. So they went back and put the blasting caps and powder back. And so the FBI said, you know, we need you to wear wire then. You know, basically, you know, we don't want to put these people away. And Salem said no. And the FBI grew really dissatisfied with him. And Salem wasn't getting much money. And he complained about this. I think he was getting like $500 a week or a month or whatever. It wasn't much. And the FBI grew very jealous of the relationship between Nancy Floyd and Emir Salem. And here, you know, the FBI blew this because Salem was the only person. And this is huge because Salem is the only person that basically infiltrated this very dangerous group that wasn't given much attention by anybody, but the, the danger was there. And Salem warned the FBI, warned the Joint Terrorism Task Force in New York about the danger of Rahman, about the danger of this group, what they wanted to do, and the FBI kicked him out. And what they did was they invited uh, Rahman, uh, this is one source, was that Rahman called Pakistan and invited uh, a bomb maker to come to the United States and help build a bomb and that's how Ramsey Yusuf came to the United States. And there's a whole, I won't get into that, the whole story of Ramsey Yusuf. Ramsey Yusuf then built a bigger bomb. And this bomb was a urea nitrate bomb. And that was the bomb that was used for the World Trade Center. There's this big misconception about, oh, the FBI built the bomb. I'm sure you heard of this. But no, the FBI didn't build the bomb. They were building the bombs for the initial bombing of the neighborhoods. In the, and the, when that plan was scrapped because Imad Salem was kicked out as an informant, in came Ramzi Youssef. They built a bigger bomb that was used. It was a urea nitrate bomb. And Imad Salem didn't know how to build a bomb. So, um, But Ramzi Youssef, through the help of another person who was more adept at bomb, bomb making, Ahmed Ajaj, who, by the way, was working for Israeli intelligence at the same time, uh, was building, uh, was helping to build a bomb, the bomb the World Trade Center. Wow. And, and you, had, you said uh, Ramzi Youssef was, was not part of Al-Qaeda? 
not technically. I, I mean, I, there are competing authors that would disagree. And I, I, one of them is a very prominent author, one I heavily respect and learned so much from, Peter Lance, um, would basically say that these were al-Qaeda members. I think uh, former FBI agent Ali Shufan would say these are al-Qaeda members. I, I, that's a tough one because none of them ever met Bin Laden. None of them ever swore by loyalty, which is needed to mm-hmm. join Al Qaeda. To say that they were Al Qaeda, I would, I would argue, I would disagree. I would say that they're affiliates, mm-hmm. but they weren't Al Qaeda officially. And is Ramzi Youssef the? Was he the only person um, charged in that? 1993 bombing or it was also the blind blind sheik that you had mentioned no this he he was one of the last actually they arrested muhammad salabi first salabi after the bombing two days later uh because the bomb was hidden inside a rider truck he he rented the rider truck incredibly he went back for the security deposit of the rider truck because he needed money to get on a plane to get out of the country and he didn't have money i mean you would think that all these people involved with this terrorist operation We'd have plans to get out of the country, you know, to escape capture. But Salem went back for a security deposit. And by then, the FBI agents found the axle of the truck miraculously with the VIN number. And they posed as agents because they found out through a phone call that Salome was coming back for his, his uh, security deposit. The FBI ran back, played uh, the part of writer uh, rental agreement uh, officers and basically arrested Salome and through him. They captured uh, Mahmoud Abilim in Egypt. He was renditioned back to the United States, and he was tortured there first. Um, they actually had Yassin, uh, but let him go, even though he had burn marks on his pants and stuff like that. I don't, I don't know what's up with that. He left the country. Um, but they arrested the, the couple of others that were involved as well. And later on, Ramzi Yusuf, who had, a, I think, a $5 million reward. I have one of the matchbooks. Uh, that was at the reward on it. I bought it through eBay. Um, uh, he was captured in Pakistan uh, through an associate of his, um, uh, Yashtik Parker. And um, basically, he, he was arrested by the U.S. Diplomatic Security Services and the uh, Joint Terrorism Task Force. He was arrested, brought back to the United States. And they and Ahmed Judge was already in jail. Um, uh, basically, he was rearrested. And they were all given 240-year sentences, all of them. Blind Sheikh was arrested afterwards. After 1993 World Trade Center bombing, there's something that's unknown to many people, and I don't blame them. It's not much. But it's called the Landmark Plot. And so Imad Salem, after the bombing, was invited back to the FBI to play informant because obviously at this point, Salem was right. Um, So Salem was given a million dollars as an offer to come back and work as an informant. And when he did, basically, um, they wanted to finished the job at the World Trade Center because it didn't collapse. Yusuf's plan was to have a bomb so big that it would explode the basement in order for have the North Tower to lean into the South Tower. And both towers actually end up collapsing into Lower Madden, killing what he called 50,000 people approximately. But it didn't happen. Came close, but didn't happen. So this group was undeterred, and Rahman basically said, we need to finish the job. Salem came back. They allowed him to come back, and he was building bombs in a warehouse that was supervised by the FBI. At this point, they they it was a uh, it was a warehouse in Jamaica Queens, and so they said the they had cameras, listening devices, and they were building all these multiple bombs that El Said Nasser originally had planned, 
when he talked to Salem uh, and Attica prison during uh, uh, 1991, 92. And so they wanted to go back to that plan and bombing, you know, the World Trade Center, bombing Jewish neighborhoods, the, bo- the bridges and whatnot. While they're building these bombs and, and, and they were near completion, the FBI arrested that group of people. And Rahman was one of those people, the co-conspirators, because Imad Salem basically went back to the group and said to one of the members of the group, his name was Sadiq Sadiq Ali. And Salem could have made entra- a crime of entrapment here because what he said to Sadiq Ali, he goes, while I'm building these bombs, what should we bomb? And, and Sadiq Ali says, I don't know. And Salem says, how about we bomb the World Trade Center again? So he's the one who offers Ali the opportunity to select the targets. But that's entrapment. But the FBI basically arrested Rahman because Salem recorded Rahman as saying that, um, according to them, we need to bomb a, um, a military, an army military base in, the, in New York. And he basically, because Rahman can't see, he had a recording device in a briefcase, Salem, and he put the briefcase right near to the ear. Very smart to do that. But um, basically, that's how they captured Rahman. And he was given a life sentence in the United States. And that's how they that's how they arrested Rahman. And when I was reading a little bit about this in the commission report, and I think I can't remember if they said this or if I'm thinking of another part of the report um, that Khalid Sheikh Mohammed also had a very minor role in 1993. Like, did Khalid Sheikh Mohammed wire some money to uh, some of these people? Yeah, he, he wired, I think it was $5,000 approximately to Mohammed Salome through a MoneyGram uh, wire transfer. Okay. That was how the, that was how um, Frank Pellegrino, who worked for the uh, Joint Terrorism Task Force in New York, found out and basically um, saw this wire transfer and said, well, who is this guy? And he was the only person to find this out. So New York and the FBI basically didn't know who Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was, but he's actually the uncle of Ramzi Youssef. And when, after the night three bombing, because it puts it in more perspective, I have to explain this. Absolutely. Yusuf actually went to the Philippines. Trump Pakistani went to the Philippines because Al-Qaeda has a uh, um, uh, an influential um, money launderer there. And his name is Jamal Muhammad Jamal Khalifa, who is actually the brother-in-law to Osama bin Laden. He married one of his sisters. And he was building businesses there. And so there was this group called the Abu Sayyaf who was basically bombing Christian missionaries and trying to take over the government. And so they were getting money from bin Laden through Mohammed Jal Khalifa, who was a businessman. He was building businesses as well as there. So all this money, a large portion of these businesses' money and financial holdings were going to the Abu Sayyaf group, who was an al-Qaeda affiliate. And so when Ramzi Yusuf went there, he was training Abu Sayyaf members on bomb making skills so they could use these bombs to blow up government buildings, not just small makeshift bombs and blowing up these small churches. So while he's doing this, Ramzi Yusuf met Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, his uncle there, who's traveling all throughout the world. He's basically an independent contractor. And so they created an op- a, a big operation there. And this operation would become known as Bajinka or Oplan Bajinka, which is bombing plot. And this is huge because this was the idea for the 9-11 operation, the planes operation. 
So this idea goes like this. Yusuf and Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and another associate, Abdul Hakim Arad, who's uh, an associate of Yusuf and also is a licensed pilot who trained in the United States, actually. And so Yusuf, Hakim Arad, and Khalid Sheikh Mohammed created an, uh, a an, uh, an operation, and it was a multifold operation. The first part of the uh, Bajika plot was to assassinate uh, the president of the United States. At that time, it was Bill Clinton, and he was visiting the Philippines. And so because the security detail was so strong, they could not possibly get to him. The next person to be assassinated was Pope John Paul II. And he was visiting the Philippines. I'm sorry, he was the one visiting, Clinton wasn't. He was the one visiting the Philippines. And so they were, they were going to dress as preachers or, or priests and, you know, throw a bomb under his um, makeshift car, you know, the, the big car that he was going to drive it. Second part of this plot was to build a bunch of Timex bomb watches, micro bombs, as he called it. And so they were going to be hidden in Timex watches. And it was a very ingenious idea. And so he was going to use urea nitrate, nitroglycerin, uh, cotton balls and swabs, and also these tiny uh, plastic devices that would fit into this watch. And so it would be placed under the seat where the, fuse, where the fuel tanks were, and this would blow up the plane. He would create 12 of these bombs because the plan was to bomb 12 airliners from Southeast Asia and the United States, all crisscrossing into each other, and had them all explode one minute of each other over the Pacific. And the remnants of the bomb of the plane would basically sink into the Pacific, and nobody knows what would happen. And, and while this was happening, um, they would actually have uh, approximately, according to him, 10,000 people dead, and the entire intercontinental United States in a, in a per state of paralysis. Because, you know, you wouldn't know which plane was going to be bombed. And this would hurt the economy, you know, in a very big way. There would be no travel around the world. You know, it would just destroy the economy. Basically, really hurt it. But there was a hidden component to this. And this would come out later when Murad was actually captured. Um, and to explain that, while they were building bombs for this in a, in a hotel room uh, called uh, uh, Dofer Al-Doha Apartments, while they were mixing chemicals, Murad basically spilled uh, one chemical into the sink and water uh, created this fissure, this huge black fissure of smoke that came out the windows and doors and they, they left. And everybody started coming around thinking the place was on fire. Fire department's called, police department's called. So Murad and Yusuf are outside and they seal the police. And Yusuf says, can you go back and get the laptop, the operations on the laptop? Because the whole operation, everybody's involved, money and all this stuff. Murad unbelievably goes upstairs and tries to retrieve the laptop with the police firemen there. They all turn around and see him. And he stops and he runs away. And so they all chase him. <laughs> because at this point, when they enter the apartment, they see all these bomb making manuals, you know, uh, you know like uh, powder on the floor, wires. They all run after him. They capture him. This is almost like a comedy of errors. And in so he's being interrogated. He's being beaten up and interrogated brutally. But one guy, Rodolfo Mendoza, who's the colonel of the Philippine police, he goes and offers him a hamburger, stops the torture, says hamburger. And Yusuf, uh, Murad is starving at this point and tries to jump on it. He goes, you got to offer me something first. And through this one small, tiny gesture, 
Maraud offers up the whole explanation about what was going on in that apartment and the Pacheco plot. He then tells him a secret component of this plot. This is important. The secret compartment of this plot was that they were already in the United States, hidden cells that were training at flight schools that were going to hijack 10 planes and have them crash all throughout the United States. Because when Murad and Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and Yusuf created this Bajinka plot, the hidden component of this plot was that there would be 10 operatives that would basically you know, hijack planes and crash them everywhere. The idea allegedly comes from Abdul Hakim Murad because he's a pilot. And he offered himself to be to take over a plane and crash it into CIA Langley headquarters in Virginia. And Yusuf said that would be a good idea. So basically, that's where the idea of 9-11 came from. When Yusuf got arrested, when Murad got arrested, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed went back to a country called Qatar. He then travels to other countries, Israel. He goes to Israel throughout the 1990s, the Philippines. And um, basically, he, the uh, the Joint Terrorism Task Force, through Frank Pellegrino, was still trying to capture him for his role in giving money to one of the 93 co-conspirators. Qatar government warned Khalid Sheikh Mohammed because he was actually part of the Water Ministry Affairs Division, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, but he didn't work in this capacity. And basically, he was warned by the government in getting out of the country. They helped him get out of the country. And so he travels all throughout. With this idea, he brings, goes to, meets with Osama bin Laden in 1998 and brings this idea of the Bajika plot with him and says, we can attack the United States this way. And he tells them about this operation involving hijacking of planes. Now, I'm not telling you to believe this because we're only getting word from Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who, by the way, is tortured from the United States. Whether this is true or not, I couldn't tell you it's true, couldn't tell you it's false or a mixture of both. And that's exactly where the government wants you. The state, you don't know who to believe. But I, 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 I'm convinced that the idea came, the 9-11 idea came from the Bajinka plot through Khalid Sheikh Mohammed but that the United States knew about the plot and manipulated it. We'll get into that later. But that's where the idea started with 9-11, that it came from the Bajinka plot through Ramzi Yusuf and Abdul Kimarad and Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, and then brought separately as an idea to bin Laden in 1998. And in 1999, bin Laden approved, but he would scale down the number of planes from 10 to 4. And this is the one thing when, uh, just from my research in this topic, um, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was a name that I honestly never knew about before I really started um, reading and researching into this. It, it almost, I mean, is it fair to say general public thinks that Osama bin Laden was the sole guy, leader, in charge, came up with the whole thing? Um, or do you think is Khalid Sheikh Mohammed's um, name in like people's purview? Um, do they kind of is do they know of that name? Do you think? Not the general public would know Khalid Sheikh Mohammed even even now. You know, coming out as nine eleven mastermind. If you said Bin Laden to anybody, everybody knows who Bin Laden is. Much more a polarizing figure. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was not, and he'd rather he would he would not want to be that way. 
it's funny because Bin Laden would rather prefer he be in the shadows and Khalid Sheikh Mohammed would rather prefer he be in the spotlight. But in the public perception, even now, Bin Laden is more remembered than Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. Yeah, that I mean, that's kind of the feeling that I get as well. Um, and what was that relationship like between Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and Osama bin Laden? Because from me uh, reading just some of the portions of the 9-11 Commission report, it, uh, it's not that they explicitly say it, but just in my mind reading uh, some of these sections, it seems like a rocky relationship. Is that fair to say? I would say it's a very um, convenient relationship. It was a matter of convenience. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed liked his independence. He was an independent terrorist contract. That's what he was. Uh, but he didn't want to be bogged down under a true leadership. Um, he liked his freedoms. But he also saw the benefit of under bin Laden, of being under bin Laden, which is money. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed didn't have much money with Yusuf now in prison. Um, wasn't getting much in the way of uh, finances for operations that he wanted to build on, which is Bajinka. And so he saw the benefits of bin Laden. So bin Laden, actually, when he met Khalid Sheikh Mohammed in 98, um, he turned down the offer to join bin Laden, swear by loyalty to him. But he swore by loyalty to him in 99, um, late 1999. Not after he accepted the fact, but much later. Bin Laden gave him even a title uh, of being involved with the, um, the media committee, with uh, propaganda. And so... Uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed saw the benefits of this and said, yeah, I, I, I need his financial uh, money to basically conduct these operations. And bin Laden said that he would only involve himself with 9-11 in the selecting of the pilot hijackers. And Khalid Sheikh Mohammed would be involved with the entire operation himself, in, including the selection of targets and the muscle hijackers. And so Khalid Sheikh Mohammed uh uh, approved of this and swore by loyalty to him in 99 or 2000, somewhere between that uh, period. But yeah, at first, yeah, he uh, did not uh, join Al-Qaeda right away. Now, in 2000, there's this meeting in, was it Indonesia or Malaysia, was it? Um, Kuala Lumpur, I think. Yes, it's Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. Okay, Malaysia. Um, at that meeting, is that meeting used to further plan what would become September 11th and kind of build off of what you had mentioned, uh, uh, Bajinka in the Philippines? Well, the Bajinka plot was actually part of the 9-11 plot. So that was thanks to that. The meeting actually was held on January 5th, between January 5th and January 8th of 2000. Um, there was a meeting between a number of Al-Qaeda affiliates in Southeast Asia, Indonesia and Philippines, for example. And it was members of Al-Qaeda going to be involved in this meeting. It was a very high-level meeting. And so U.S. intelligence, who were monitoring uh, the phones of bin Laden, and I have to go back a little bit to make this sound uh, ra you know, understandable to the public ear and eye. Absolutely. Throughout the 1990s, NSA was wiretapping the satellite phones used by bin Laden because he would bin Laden is living in Afghanistan at this point. And he was actually, even, even while he was in the Sudan coordinating with our Al Qaeda affiliates throughout the world and how he was doing this, he was on a satellite phone. And at that time in the early nineties, very few people had satellite and satellite phones were huge to those 
you know, people born today, you know, phones aren't this big. Back then it was like huge and they were expensive, this right. big antenna, you know, something you see out of Miami Vice, right? So he's using these big, very expensive satellite uh, cell phones. Courtney and NSA knew about this. And he, you know, encrypt, decrypted the phone lines and began listening to these phone calls and got numbers from these encrypted phone, decrypted phone phone calls and began tracing lines throughout the world, saying, well, wow, who's this person? This person? So the CIA became involved, too, because they do human intelligence. And so the NSA and the CIA began focusing on bin Laden in Sudan, later in Afghanistan. And all of a sudden, one number kept popping up on the satellite phone. And it was a number to a house in Yemen, in the capital of Sana. And so NSA wired, began listening to the phone calls of this house. And the CIA became involved, and they put a bug in that house because they don't do signals intelligence. So they can only listen to half of the phone calls, the phone calls that were outgoing, because they hear, they could hear the person on the phone. And so from 1996 to 2002, the CIA were listening to one half of the phone calls and monitoring this house. And from 1992, approximately, 92 to 2001, the NSA were listening to all the satellite phones and the phone calls originating from this house. In other words, an enormous amount of metadata, met data, signals, intelligence data, phone calls. That were it's just a huge amount. You could only imagine how many people were calling. So they heard about this in 1999. They heard December of 99, mind you. The NSA heard about a meeting in Malaysia through this phone call between a Khalid who's in Malaysia and Khalid, who answered the phone, knowing that this Khalid person is Khalid al-Midar, who would later have a much bigger effect because he's involved with the hijacking of Flight 77 that crashed the Pentagon. But he's married to the daughter of the owner of the house. The owner of the house is Ahmed al-Hada. He's married to the daughter, Hoda al-Hada. And Khalid al-Midar, that would make him his son-in-law. So he picked up the phone, and Khalid tells him about this meeting in Malaysia. The NSA and CIA hear about it, and tell Malaysian authorities to prepare about doing, you know, conducting monitoring operation about the coming and goings of inside who's coming at this meeting, and they take pictures. So who goes to this meeting? Everybody in the who's who of groups like Abu Sayyaf, Jemaah Islamiyah, Al Qaeda are there. One particular businessman named Yazid Sufat, who owns the condominium, who owns the apartment in the condominium, holds this meeting, and so. Ridwan Isamuddin also goes by the name of Hambali, who's a bomb maker and a huge co the co-creator of the Jem Islamia. Fahad Al Kuso, who would later go on to bomb um, the uh, the U.S. embassies in uh, in in North Africa. Um, members of 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 Al Qaeda like Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, Khalid Al Midar, Nawaf Al Hazmi, Ramzi Ben Al Sheib, um, and Walid Taufik Ben Atash known as Khalad. They all go to this meeting. Maybe and later on it's alleged that Zacharias Musawi goes to this meeting. And so a number of others are also at this meeting. Members who would go involved with the bombing of the USS Cole, the bombing of uh people who bombed the world of uh, the embassy. I'm sorry, Fadel Kusa is involved with the USS Cole, not the bombing of the embassy, but members of the embassy bomb they're all going here. And the NSA and CIA hear about this, Malaysian authorities. So they take pictures of, of everybody involved. And that's what this meeting is called. It's called the Al-Qaeda Summit Meeting in Malaysia. That's what it's called. Wow. It, could they have 
at this point done anything uh, to uh, intercept these people or disrupt the meeting and, I mean, take these people in custody or at this time they don't, um, they don't have anything on them? Like, was there, could they have done anything? The CIA certainly could have stopped Khalid Sheikh Mohammed because at this point he's wanted um, for his role in the 93 World Trade Center bomb. And this is where it opens the door for conspiracies, right? Because why couldn't they like interfere in this meeting? The best just arrest anybody for being involved with terrorist groups. And if, even if they couldn't prove a, a an act of a crime, a criminal nature, criminal um, like a bombing incident, whatever, they could have just arrested them for being affiliated with these groups. I mean, it's a touchy subject, a touchy line. I don't know why. That, that's a very good question, Chris. I don't know why they did, but. What they what they learned from this meeting is that something big is happening. Why would they be meeting here? The CIA knew this. And this is not me saying this, it's coming from the CIA. They knew something big was happening. And then in 1996, the CIA creates a I have to I have to mention this too. The CIA creates a virtual station, and it's called the Bin Laden Issue Station, codenamed Alex Station. And what they wanted to do was while they were learning about bin Laden through the phone calls of the satellite phones from the NSA, monitoring bin Laden in Africa, monitoring bin Laden in Afghanistan. See, I knew about bin Laden for years. They created this virtual station just for him and Al Qaeda. And so what they did, they did was the virtual station invited members of the uh, intelligence commu community in the United States, the FBI, the NSA, the Defense Intelligence Agency called the DIA all involved with this operation. And it was very covert group, group involved with this. And to head this group, the, the deputy chief was Michael Scheuer. Michael Scheuer was known for his acumen of understanding radical fundamentalists more so than any CIA case officer in the world. So he was the perfect fit. And through him, he managed a group of women that basically people like Alfreda Ampakowski, Michelle Ann Casey, Jennifer Matthews, all these people would create this group of, of core group, Alex Station. It was codenamed Alex Station by um, Anthony Schaefer. Anthony Schaefer, um, who is part of a group called Able Danger, another signal, uh, another metadata mining group that came later. Um, right, no, right around 96 created. But he would call them Alex Station because the codename, and Michael Shore's son is Alex. So they just nicknamed it Alex Station instead of the Bin Laden Issue Station because they, they didn't want many people to know about this covert group. And they collected data from all around the world, from all these agencies that were involved with this group. But the thing was, the CIA wasn't very forthcoming in sharing information with the members of the agencies in that group at the same time. You know, you would when I interviewed Schaefer, he said naively he thought everybody was on the same page. They weren't. And so this would make sense about the Malaysia meeting, why they couldn't interfere with it, why they didn't disrupt it in some manner. Well, the CIA was collecting information from that meeting, and it was such an important meeting that they withheld this information from the FBI. And it doesn't stop there. And we could go down that road if you want. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think if I, if I have a question in regards to this. So one thing... This is kind of backtracking a little bit, um, but from the the gentleman that they arrested in, that came back for the laptop in the Philippines, 
that you had mentioned um he he had mentioned that there were already cells in the united mm-hmm. states at this time um and we're talking at this point this was 1995 1996 96 96 97 was did anybody any organizations agencies uh in the united states act on that information that they got from that gentleman and investigate these the cells in the united states this is this is an excellent question chris i'm glad you asked it because i totally forgot about this part of the uh point when Bajinka plot was uncovered and the investigation ended with uh, uh abdul hakim Murad, the colonel i was talking about Rodolfo mendoza wrote up a draft report and sent it to the FBI, of course, the Department of Justice, because they would be involved because Murad's being transferred back to the United States. And so when this happened, according to the FBI director, Louis Free, he basically got the intelligence report and gave it to the FBI. How do I know this? Because in the 9-11 Commission, uh, uh, 9/11 Commission Louis Free says that they act because he was asked about this report. And he says that, yes, we gave it to the FBI. According to Rodolfo Mendoza, the FBI didn't act on it. Now, did Louis Free get the report? Yes. Did he give it to the FBI? According to him, yes, he did. According to the FBI's acting director, Monty Belger, yes. And he says this in the 9-11 Commission report. Also, they didn't act on it. In other words, they mm-hmm. didn't heighten security measures on these places. They didn't heighten immigration resolves like with the INS stricter security measures or stricter rules regarding people coming out of Afghanistan, which is a known hotbed for Islamist activity or Pakistan. And so what this did was when the report was disseminated throughout the FAA and the FBI, yes, it went to them, but they didn't act on this information. Why? I don't know. Your your guess is as good as mine, Chris. Mm -hmm. But with this report, and it's a damning report, you would think that, hey, wait a minute, the problem is really bigger than we originally thought. The FBI basically, at this point, really didn't know who bin Laden was, had no idea who Khalid Sheikh Mamba was, didn't think al-Qaeda was a big idea, because at that point, they were more interested in La Cosa Nostra, the Italian mafia, more than anything. So a lot of the funding didn't go to these cities like Phoenix and New York or other places. You know, Phoenix and New York are the biggest in terms of, of radical fundamentalist units, but nowhere else. I mean, nobody else got funding. And so, you know, they didn't care about this insignificant I- ideology, but they should have. And, and some people actually tried to warn them about bin Laden and the growing nexus of Islamic fundamentalists. And the warnings were there. So that's why your, your question is so important, because in 1996-97, the idea of hijacking planes was brought to the United States and they dismissed it. So in other words, you had a five-year window, six-year window, right, regarding airplanes being used as weapons. And the Intelligence Committee will tell you, and of course, the, the Bush White House will say, nobody could imagine them hijacking planes. Remember Condoleezza Rice gave that infamous testimony to the 9-11 Commission where she says, nobody could imagine planes as weapons. Well, that wasn't the case because back in '96. They had the idea of planes, and it was disseminated through the Intelligence Committee. It was disseminated to the FAA, but nobody acted on the information. That's why your question is so important. And were um, 
were any of the people involved uh, in those cells a, a part of the events of September 11th? Like, were any of them uh, one of the 19 hijackers? Do we know that information? The only hijacker that was involved, uh, that was inside the United States at this point, was Hani Hanjour. Hani Hanjour went to the University of Arizona in 1992 to study electric, uh, engineering. I think electrical engineering. Um, and then he left in 95, 96, but he took residency in Arizona as well. He also trained at flight schools in Arizona um, and then later came, uh, trained at flight schools in Saudi Arabia. According to some, he's a very poor pilot. According to some, he was a mediocre pilot, but you don't need to be an expert to crash a plane. So they weren't, you don't need to be, there's a, some misconception. Yeah, he's a terrible pilot, but by the way, you don't need to be an expert to have a pilot put it on autopilot for the majority of the plane and then crash it when you get near it. Just doesn't take an expert do that. So they didn't need to be trained as pilots, you know, professional pilots. Somehow he got his certificate uh, ratings license and he was approved. But he's the only one that was in the United States during that period of Pacheco. So, no, the others were not in the United States at this time. Okay. Did when when Al Qaeda was recruiting people for uh, the operation on September 11th, do we know if they ran into a lot of issues finding people or like finding people that were capable of doing the attacks? Or I, I guess I'm saying um, that they have to go through a lot of. A lot of people to get to the final 19 that uh, we have on that day. According to Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, again, take this grain of salt, um, he had no end to a number of people that were willing to die to inflict mass casualties. According to bin Laden, again, take this grain of salt, they didn't have many people. According to bin Laden, 10 planes was too big. He didn't have that many people involved. Four planes he could do. So in other words, it was a contrast of how many people would be willing to die. Now, with the muscle hijackers, according to a lot of sources, sources I find reputable, um, they were not told of the operation until days before it even happened. Oh, wow. So, And some didn't even know it was a martyrdom operation. This would make sense because it's hard to find 19 people willing to die at any moment without having at least one person basically saying, you know what, I'm going to change my mind. Because, you know, with this skepticism about death, no matter how devoted. Now, one thing about the Wahhabi ideology mentality is that it perverts them to thinking that paradise is awaiting for them in the afterlife as a martyr. And a lot of people, especially here in the United States, they don't understand Wahhabism in general. It's I understand because it, it, it's not really taught here. It's actually um, condemned by 95% of the Muslim community, and nobody really knows what it entails. But when one is infused with this ideology, it basically creates this almost like this self-destructive nature of where I need to sacrifice myself for the greater good to achieve 
the benefits of paradise. And for them, Islam itself, the, the tenets of Islam, basically creates jihad as a spiritual warfare, one that, that wants to defeat the evil uh, inclinations that, was, that they believe involves in every human being. So the jihad is spiritual. To them, it's not. It's, it's, it's lineal. It's, it's physical to defeat the evils outside the world. And what is the evil outside the world? Anything that isn't Islamic. That's not taught in Islam, but it's taught in Wahhabi Salafism. That's what it's called now. So they wanted, I mean, when you can get somebody who's very ignorant of the Quran, and by the way, all these 19 hijackers, allegedly, the pod hijackers anyway, if you don't want to believe that they were on these planes or whatever, but one thing is for certain, all these 19 men are ignorant when it comes to Islam. And that is why they can they can get these people in these very poor regions of, and that's where po- poverty breeds extremism. And it's very important to know this. And it, but, you know, Christian has this problem. You know, evangelicals that come in, in the poor South, the red states. So it's there's no influx of people that you can get. You can go to like some country like in southern uh, Saudi Arabia, in Hejaz, for example, and get some nomadic tribe, somebody who basically doesn't go to an educated school that's Islamic and basically who's already indoctrinated to Islam and then have him as like a, a martyr, a willing martyr. He's willing to die for you. He just needs a reason to do it. And we saw this in the Afghan-Soviet war. One thing the Soviets noticed was that they were, most of them were in shock at how the Afghans were running toward them instead of running away from them because they saw it as dead to die. Some of these people are just waiting for a moment to die in the nature of battle. And it's not, this is not original. We saw this with the Japanese, the uh, samurai, the samurai cold, where they were given a reason to die in a battle in the name of a greater purpose. Same thing for Salafi, Wahhabi ideology proponents. If you give them a reason to die for a greater cause, they'd be more than willing to do it. But yeah, having 19 people, because you got to think that you know, they're young men. None of these are old, except for Khalid al-Midar and Wafadmi. They were they were the only experienced jihadists. But yeah, I would not to go off on a tangent, Chris, but yeah, it's tough. I don't think they had many. But they would be it it would just have a they would just have they didn't have the time, but they could go to like these poor regions in say Southeast Asia or, or Saudi Arabia and they could get them. But um, the details wouldn't be afforded to them. They just have to be told, listen, you're, you're going to die in this project, and, and that's that. But the muscle hijackers, all they need to do is stop from the pastures from revolting. That's all. So whether they knew about it or not, you know, I, it, it's an argument to be made. But um, I don't think all of them knew. I think most of them knew. But were they willing to die? That's a good question. Um, we don't know because they're all dead. Mm-hmm. It really seems like the the toughest thing would be to find uh, to find people who were capable of going to flight schools, learning how to maneuver a plane. Um, I, I gotta believe that that would be the toughest challenge uh, is to find people that were capable of doing that mm-hmm. and. I mean, even wasn't there actually one person who Al-Qaeda had uh, 
pegged to fly a plane and that that man actually ended up uh dropping out and leaving uh, the united states the name escapes me now um but yeah I, I, that just seems like the toughest part the muscle hijackers that you mentioned yeah you can it seems like y- you could get more available people that can do that job but flying a plane's like a whole different matter was it, i want to dare and say was it niz khan might have been yeah uh, he would come out later i think he was interviewed by an american media i i forgive me i don't know who he was interviewed by but he came out on video and said that he was involved with the planes operation and that he backed out at the last set he's not the first mm-hmm. there were others and this was what leads me to believe it wasn't just four planes that it was much bigger mm-hmm. and i i could provide evidence for this um i made for example i made a podcast uh regarding a flight called united airlines flight 23 a lot of people don't know this because it wasn't really reported in the media big time. I don't know why. Should have been. Anyway, this plane on September 11, 2001, was going to take out a JFK. And when it did, it was going to go to, um, um, I want to say, San Francisco. So it was on the runway. It's about to, about to leave. Word came in through um, the executive officers of United Airlines. Gerald Arpey was the CEO. Gave out the warning, don't take off all grounded airlines. He was the first person. And I just want to make this clear. Gerald Arpey is a hero. He was the first person in the United States to call for a stand down, but it was only a stand down for United Airlines. Mm. But when um, United Airlines flight 175 crashed into the South Tower and that they heard that United 93 was missing, he took it on his own and said, all planes nationwide stop for United Airlines. This plane then stopped, went back to the gate. And while they're going back to the gate, there's a flight attendant whose name escapes me, basically gets on the phone and says, I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen, but we will not be flying out today. Now the word is getting out that the planes are are getting hijacked. Well, according to the reports, three Arab men or four got up and started arguing with the flight attendant. And they started arguing about we need to fly the plane. I need to get to this des- destination. What have you, whatever was sent to, but they were very threatening to this woman. So she became very worried. And so afterwards she called security at the gate and said, could you come to the gate? I'm having a problem. So when it got to the gate, they deplaned everybody. And when everybody left, so did these three or four Arabs, they just mixed in with the crowd and left, but they left behind their carry on luggage. So when security got to the gate, they checked, the, they checked to see if there's anything behind. Anybody's on a plane? They saw the carry-on luggage. In the carry-on luggage was a flight manual, Al-Qaeda manual, pilot's uniform, box cutters. So I'm sorry, that's not a separate event. That's part of the operation. Mm-hmm. Now, the FBI knew about this. Now, I'm from what I know, I'm the only person to file a freedom of information request regarding the flight manifest for this plane. But I was told by the National Archives that I need to be law enforcement, which is right. Um, I'm looking at information about public people, and I'm, I'm only a you know a common citizen. So I, I couldn't see. But it was brought to my attention from my co-researcher, fantastic DJ Thorough Detonator, Nelson Martins, who basically conducted a film, made a film, and he's made numerous films, 
And in the film, um, basically, he showed that those same people on Flight 23 went back when the when the airports reopened on September 14th, went back and tried to board another plane. So, and one of them was dressed as a pilot. So, <laughs> nobody knows about this. But by the way, he's the only person that I know that reports on the additional attempted hijackings of September 13, 14. Well, is that a conspiracy theory? No, because the co-chair of the Joint House Inquiry, Bob Graham, would later remark saying that they knew, the committee knew, that there were additional hijackings that were supposed to take place the second wave. Now, who proposed the second wave of attacks? Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. Because wow. this 9-11 operation was part of the Pajinka plot, which was two waves of attacks. So that's why. Now, it doesn't mean that Al-Qaeda was involved with these attacks. We don't know who these people were. We don't know. Because if Bin Laden says that he wanted four planes hijacked with 19 hijackers, well then, who the hell are these people? Who are these people? Are they agents? Are they infiltrators? Are they people allowed by the intelligence committee? Did, they, did anybody know who these people were? No, because all those people that were uh, rounded up on September 13th, 14th, their crime was they overextended their visa or they didn't have visas. And so they are handed automatically over to INS. And so what happens is they're deported back to their home countries. You think those people would have come back to investigate who these people were involved in these operations? No. But that is a – nobody knows about this. And I want to know why. Why? It's known to the intelligence community. It's known to the joint house inquiry. Why isn't, in, why isn't this investigated? So, yeah, that to, to, to answer your question, there was a couple of people that, act, that got out of the operation. Um, there's also another story about four men from Qatar – um, that was involved with a plane, um, Flight 77, on the day before. They came to the United States. They were going to hijack the plane on September 10th, but they left the United States. And this is actually, I, I forgive me, I think it's Qatar, but I don't know, if it was, or Jordan, Jordan, Qatar or Jordan, one of those countries, but they left the United States. But they were supposed to hijack the plane. Who are those people? Right. Nobody, FBI knows about them. But nobody, nobody talks about it. Wow. Uh, sticking on this topic of of the hijackers, how how easily did these nineteen men? How easy was it for them to get in the United States? Was it did they have any sort of difficulties when they first uh, came came here? It's another good question, by the way. No, in fact. Most of the original pilot hijackers, that is Muhammad Atta, Ziajar, Mohan Al and Hani Anjur, um, got their visas approved. And they were the easiest to get in because they're, they look Western, very clean cut, went to two universities, um, so they could fit right in. So their visas were approved right away. Now, the muscle hijackers Khalid Al Midar, Nawaf Ahadmi, Satam Al Saskami, Fayez Bani Hamad, all these people. They're Saudis. Most of them are from Saudi Arabia. One's from United Arab Emirates. The other one is from um, Egypt. And so they are, they're coming from their home countries through Afghanistan because that's where they're trained. But Afghanistan is known 
to the to the world about being a hot hotbed for Arab fundamentals. So all these Arab fundamentalists, Arab, Saudi Arabians, are coming from Saudi Arabia. There's two consulates there, U.S. consulate in Jeddah and U.S. consulate in Riyadh, the capital. So I made a podcast about this too, that the U.S. consulate in the years, the years 1999-2000, the United States had a program called the Visa Express Program. In other words, the United States wanted to bridge the relationship with Saudi Arabia. And going about this time, because of the 93 World Trade Center, because of the bombings of the U.S. embassies in Tanzania and Kenya, this reflected badly to the public atmosphere, uh, public sphere regarding Saudi Arabia. So the United States wanted to build on that relationship. And it's only because of oil. That's it. So basically, they created what they called a Visa Express program. In other words, students from Saudi Arabia that wanted to get to the United States had to go through a very rigorous process in the mid-1990s. The United States basically basically alleviated those restrictions and created this program to fast-track them. In other words, they could fill out a, fill out an application but didn't need to answer every question, didn't need to answer some, uh, didn't need to show their financial holdings, where, you know, where they went to school, right? Typically, you could, you don't have to answer those questions. All those hijack muscle hijackers didn't have um, any university training, didn't have any long-term goals to stay in the United States or even short-term goals. So, because there's two visa uh, programs, you have one for extended visa and one for a temp visa. So they really couldn't answer these questions. Some of them couldn't even speak English. So they couldn't even really legibly write on these applications. So basically, they didn't, when they submitted these applications, usually you have to meet with a um, a visa uh, officer face-to-face, a physical meeting. Um, but they didn't have to do that. With the Visa Express program, all they had to do was drop off their applications, and they didn't even have to do it personally. Somebody could have done it for them. You never know. Drop it off at the consulate, have it approved, fast-track in the United States. That's what happened to all of the muscle hijackers. Even with Khalid al-Minor and Wafa Hadley, who were known al-Qaeda operatives, known to the CIA, known to the NSA, known to the Israeli Mossad, okay, known to the Saudi General Intelligence Director, security apparatus of Saudi Arabia, known. They still got their visas, still got in the United States. So they all came in the year 2000. Most of the muscle hijackers came in the summer of 2000. And the person who approved those applications was a consular officer by the name of Shana Steinger. Shana Steinger actually gave closed-door testimony to the 9-11 Commission and basically said that she was overwhelmed in the years 99-2000, which I don't disagree, because now with this express program, everybody wants to get on the program. Even people who live in Syria, who live in jihadists, who live in these other countries— could go to Saudi Arabia, could basically, you know, write any address down, hand it over to the consular officer, and basically they can get in because there's no strict process until after 9-11, of course. But by then, it's too late. So this Visa Express program gave carte blanche to all of the 9-11 hijackers. I think it's, don't quote me, I think it's 14 of the 19 went through this program. A majority of them came through this program. Wow. When when they arrive in the United States, is it difficult? Like, do we know, was it difficult for them to 
assimilate like into American society or are these are these men like kind of sticking out like sore thumbs? I mean, I know you had mentioned um, uh, some of them kind of look have Western features, so maybe they fit in a little better. But um, for for the rest of them, was it hard for them? Like, did they speak English? Did, was there um, was there a difficulty? You know, just communicating with people and hitting the ground running, so to speak. Yeah. Um, another good question, by the way. How did they assimilate into American society? Well, according again, take this grain of salt. According to Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, one of the training processes involved with the planes operation was to have the muscle and pod hijackers go through a, a, a training process of sounding or looking like an American. Now, of course, the English language is the hardest language in the world to master or even learn. And so a lot of these muscle hijackers had a very huge problem learning just the basics of the English language. But they cut off their beards. They bought like American clothing. They opened up bank accounts in Florida through a bank called SunTrust. They actually got driver's licenses, some of them through nefarious means. Um, some of them uh, got bogus passports. Some of them got bogus IDs. And I could talk about one such instance that came later about a woman in Tennessee who was murdered or killed later. Uh, she was given fake IDs to people who were working in the World Trade Center basement levels through the shower, uh, through plumbing. Um, that's another whole story that nobody knows about. So, yeah, some of these hijackers that came to the United States, they fit right in. And, of course, we're a diverse country. Uh, so it's very hard. It's very easy to assimilate they're very easy, not hard at all. Um, but the one thing they had a problem was learning language. Now, what a lot of people don't realize is that the first two that came to the United States, Khalid Amidor and Nawaf al-Hazmi, they were actually selected as pilots to crash. They were supposed to be the pilot hijackers of Flight 77. And they went to flight training. But instead... They were kicked out because they didn't learn the English language. And while they were in California, and by the way, CIA and NSA knew about this. They were inside the United States, knew they were Al-Qaeda operatives, but didn't tell the FBI. The FBI had no clue. They were actually living in the United States, going to English classes, going to flight training schools. But then they got lazy and started just, you know, hanging around and inviting people to the apartment and whatnot with the help of Saudi consular officials who were helping them along with logistics and finances. And I could get into that in a bit through the latest revelations from the FBI about Saudi government officials helping these two men, knowing they're Al-Qaeda. And by the way, because they didn't learn the English language, now they had to uh, basically uh, fix this gap. And they invited Hadi Hanjour because he had been in the United States and he has some language English skills, not basic, you know, very basic, but he had uh, flight training uh, experience. So he was uh, implemented as the uh, flight 77 pilot hijacker. But a lot of those muscle hijackers really didn't need to learn the language, but they had to stay in the United States. So they learned the very basics because they were just muscle hijackers. That's all. Mm -hmm. But, you know, all of them had very little except for Ziad Jara, Muhammad Atta, and, uh, um, uh, Mo and Al Shea, you had decent English, but a lot of them basically didn't have much in the way of uh, 
understanding the language. But they fit right in the United States. And uh, of the nineteen, um, who were who were the first to arrive in the in the United States? Technically, it's Hani Hundred, but not for the operation to go to university. But for the operation, it was Khalid Al Minar and Awafa Hasan. Okay, and you had said um, they they come into California. Yes, from the Malaysia meeting that we talked about previously, um, it was known to the NSA that they were coming to the United States. And this is where the real big conspiracy happens because the NSA and CIA knew that these two men were involved with, at some level, the bombing of the USS Cole, at some level, the embassy bombings. They knew they fought in Chechnya against the Soviets as part of Al-Qaeda in the Balkans. So these two guys had the longest experience with Al-Qaeda. And, you know, I don't need to tell you because we said throughout this interview that Al-Qaeda was going, you know, was at war with the United States. Why didn't these these agencies tell the FBI, say, hey, listen, could you basically monitor these people and see up to no good? No. What they did was they withheld this information intentionally. And when the information came that they were inside the United States, that they had U.S. visas because while they were coming to the United States, they overstood at a hotel in Bangkok. And the CIA, according to one source, CIA basically took photographs of the passports. And this this is true. The passports were actually faxed to the counterterrorism center at Alex Station. And that's when the CIA knew that, oh, these guys have visas, dual visas. In other words, they could leave the country and come back. So it wasn't temp visa either. So they had this information. Now, the second person to read that cable at Alex Station was an FBI agent. His name was Doug Miller. And he's on loan from New York to work at Alex Station, along with Mark Rossini. And so Doug Miller sees this information. His eyes light up. Says, Holy cow, these guys are coming here. They're dangerous. So he writes up a draft report called the uh, uh, Essential Intelligence Report, CIR, right? So he writes up this draft report attached with the photographs of the passports of Khalid Abadar, Noah Fahadbi, along with a biography of them being Al-Qaeda agents in their history. So now he wants to send it to the Department of Justice headquarters in Washington, D.C. But first, because it's CIA information, he has to get approval. So he goes to the, the emails, the deputy director of Alex Station. His name is Tom Wilshire. And so Tom Wilshire now is like at a preface. Uh, how do I tell them no? So his analyst, who's the lead analyst of the Yemen hub, the Al-Qaeda Yemen hub in Yemen, Michelle Ann Casey, tells her to tell on the photo, on the cable, please, quote, please hold off per Wilshire, end quote. Cable goes back to Miller. Miller's like, what's the holdup? Tom Wilshire and Michelle Ann Casey basically say, we need more information. But later on, it drags out to weeks. Mark Rossini, who I've interviewed, basically goes to Michelle and Casey and says, what's the holdup on Miller's cable? Why are we holding this up? They're inside the United States. She says to him, this is according to Rossini, she says to him, it's not an FBI matter. We think the next attack is in Malaysia, which is outside the FBI's jurisdiction. We'll let the FBI know when 
It's important. And so you can't send this information back to headquarters. And so the FBI didn't. Marcosini didn't. Under threat that if he did, he would be arrested for sharing information with another agency. As ridiculous as that sounds. So they didn't do it. And so this information is withheld from the FBI. Meanwhile, they're in the United States. More of them are coming later, 2000. All known to the CIA, the NSA, the Saudi General Intelligence Directorate, and the Israeli Mossad. The Saudi and Israelis are conducting their own operations, whether in conjunction with the CIA and NSA or their own. We don't know. But they know about the hijackers living in the United States, and they know about the affiliates helping them. And how do we know that? Is because later on, um, the Saudis, uh, under the FBI operation, Operation Pent Bomb, and later on, Operation Encore, did help along with Khalid al-Midar and Osby. The Israelis had a bigger intelligence ring, much bigger. The biggest foreign intelligence ring ever in U.S. history. And they used moving front companies, and they also posed as art students to basically get information from the FBI, the Drug Enforcement Agency, and also the art student ring that were monitoring all the 9-11 hijackers and their affiliates throughout the southwest United States, New York, New Jersey, Florida, Oklahoma, you name it, all there. Wherever the hijackers lived, they were there too. How do we know that? Because there was a report much later, not publicly known, called the Gerald Shea Memo. Gerald Shea, who worked, he was a retired lawyer out of San Obispo, California, did an independent investigation about all these art student rings involved with the monitoring of the 9-11 hijackers and also with groups affiliated with the hijackers that were helping them. And so this was a huge massive ring. And this report went to the Joint House Inquiry 9-11 Commission and they dismissed it. And while all this is happening, whether they knew it or not, 9-11 hijackers didn't know. So they're operating openly and they're living openly. And guess who's in the dark? The FBI, the one agency who could put an end to all this if the information is shared. Why didn't the Israelis share? Why didn't the Saudis share? Could have stopped 9-11. Now, I'm not saying this because I'm saying it. Take it, for example, from former senior executive of the NSA, Thomas Drake, who I consider the most important whistleblower of my time. He basically said that the NSA had so much data on all the hijackers, even from Al-Qaeda in the mid-1990s, that if shared with anyone, could have stopped 9-11 altogether. Just that agency alone. Now, when you put together the CIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, who are running able danger, who I didn't mention, that's with Anthony Schaefer, big whistleblower I've interviewed, um, the Israelis, the Saudis. Can you imagine the information all these agencies had? I mean, it's a, they had the information. But later on, all of these people involved with these operations would complain, not the Israeli Saudis because they went back to their home countries, but the NSA, the CIA would complain. They didn't have the manpower and didn't collect the information. When the evidence is the contrary, they had enormous amounts of information, but they claimed that they didn't read it all because they didn't have the manpower. Well, now, after 9-11, all the 
the Bush White House gave the NSA, gave the FBI, gave the CIA blank checks and basically grew these agencies into monstrosities that they are now. And by the way, who are the terrorists? It's us, American people, because they're collecting information on us. 9-11 is just a pretext. They could have stopped 9-11 altogether very easily. They could have stopped it in 1999-2000. But nobody shared information. Now, that leads to the question, why? Why didn't they share it? Well, right. your guess is as good as mine, but it leaves open the door to all types of conspiracies. Oh, maybe they wanted it to happen. Well, maybe they allowed part of it to happen. Uh, maybe they created 9-11 to happen. Uh, you know, all these conspiracies. And you can't really dismiss them all, but you could dismiss some of them. But I can make a great argument. I can't prove it. I can make a great argument that the NSA and CIA, at the highest levels, some people, very few, knew these attacks were coming and allowed these attacks to transpire because of the greater foreign policy geopolitical outlines that they could expand on and having the military industrial complex along with Israel, Saudi Arabia to basically take over the Middle East and the United States to extend their empire into the Middle East as well and subjugate the Arab subculture while making billions in profits to the private corporations like Halliburton, LG3 Technologies, Boeing, Raytheon, as well as you know subjugating the Arab world, which is basically what Israel and Saudi Arabia wants, and they still want. So there's a lot of like influences involved with allowing 9-11 to happen. And that's a daring claim I make, very daring. I can't prove any of this, of course, but I can make a great argument for it. And speaking of um, uh, preventing September 11th, I, I had heard, um, I don't know if it was an interview from uh, President Clinton, uh, that they were very close to getting Osama bin Laden um, somewhere in the 90s. And to to go along with what you're saying, would that, if that would have happened, um, would that have made a difference at all in the events that transpired uh, taking out Osama bin Laden earlier, like years earlier? Oh, that's a great question, Chris. Um this is a great question because throughout the mid-1990s, under the Clinton administration, through their national security advisor, Sandy Berger, and through the principals meetings held by the Pentagon and the CIA, the CIA had wrought up drafts about assassinating bin Laden as early as 1993, 92, 93, while he was living in Khartoum, Sudan. One such case officer, a legendary case officer, and... Uh, he was involved with the capture of a terrorist in the 1980s, Carlos de Jackal, and his name escapes me, Billy Waugh. His name is Billy Waugh. Along with Kofor Black, they captured uh, Carlos de Jackal. But Billy Waugh was asked to come back and track bin Laden in Khartoum, and he did. And he acted like an American journalist runner, or, you know, like a, a you know tourist. And, he, and bin Laden used to walk and jog. He used to exercise outside of his house, but he had a contingent of bodyguards with him. So Billy Waugh, you know, they wouldn't mention Billy Waugh had to build up a report and, you know, do this for weeks and months. So they noticed Billy Waugh, Billy Waugh would travel at a distance so close to bin Laden that he brought up a proposal to the Clinton administration and said, I could probably kill him with a rock, but I would 
probably be killed in the process. Um, but I could get close to where I could shoot him and kill him. And the Clinton administration uh, rejected this proposal. Later on, there was, uh, while, while bin Laden relocated to Afghanistan in 96, there was a proposal that was new at the time, drone strike program. And to most of the Pentagon, this was a proposal that was really assassination program. Now, for those who don't know, the CIA at that time, this sounds ludicrous, wasn't into the assassination uh, operations anymore because of the Frank Church meetings of 1977, basically saw that the CIA became this very nefarious black agency. You had uh, John Stockwell um, uh, and, and a couple of others that blew the whistle on you know, CIA conducting, you know, these dark operations of assassinating people in other countries. And so the church meetings put the CIA under the ground, so to speak, away from the public eye. But George Tenney, when he was uh, uh, nominated for DCI, Director of Central Intelligence, basically wanted to, he was a visionary. He wanted to bring back the CIA out of the shadows. So when this drone program came to their attention from the Pentagon in 96, they rejected the idea because the Pentagon said, why don't you, you know, do it? Because this is your, your type of, it's under your jurisdiction. CIA can't conduct, in other words, CIA can't conduct operations in the United States. It's illegal. So they conduct operations in other countries. So it was up to them because it was in Khartoum, it was in Afghanistan. So in Afghanistan, when they brought up the idea of the drone strike, George Tenet rejected, said, we're not an assassination project. I'm building the CIA up from the ground again. Pentagon said, well, we really, we never used this before. So, in other words, now that project was rejected by the, the Clinton administration. And there was, an, according to Michael Scheuer, the, the director of the Alex Station, he would basically say that just about every proposal to either capture, rendition, or kill bin Laden in the mid-1990s was rejected by the Clinton administration because Clinton basically said this would harm relations with Yemen, with Saudi Arabia, because bin Laden's Yemeni, and we were trying to build relations with them. And so all those opportunities were wasted. And, of course, we're armchair quarterbacking now because bin Laden you know, bombed the embassies in, in, in Africa and then 9-11. Um, nobody saw bin Laden as a threat. Nobody, except for the very few at the CIA and at the very few at the FBI. And basically, bin Laden was not a big threat, didn't pay him any attention. Meanwhile, the threats were there. It was very noticeable. They, they should have done it. Should have done it. Mm -hmm. And with with the with the FBI and CIA base, you were talking about earlier not sharing inf information between each other. Was the same thing going on when there was the transition from President Clinton to President Bush, and was in was information about Al Qaeda? Uh, transferred over in in that presidential transition it, i mean would that make any sort of difference in all of this at all yeah it's, I'm, by the way ironically i'm just uploading 9-11 clips regarding this showing that the transition team from clinton to the bush white house regarding al-qaeda and the warnings and the reports well according to the counterterrorism czar uh, richard clark head of the counterterrorism uh, white house counterterrorism unit he served under both presidents, Clinton and, and Bush. The difference was Clinton gave Clark a primary seat at the principal's meeting, which is the meeting of all the heads of the Pentagon and the intelligence community. 
Under the Bush administration, they did not give Clark a seat, and they didn't treat al-Qaeda the same. Even though much later in the 9-11 Commission, Paul Wolfowitz and Donald Rumsfeld and, and um, others in the Bush White House basically said, oh, they gave, Bush White House gave al-Qaeda priority. But the evidence was clear through the historical record. That's not true. In fact, they saw China as the bigger threat. They wanted to revisit the Cold War. Um, they didn't care for much rebuilding relations with Israel, for example. They wanted to rebuild relations with Saudi Arabia instead. The Bush White House, by the way, the Bush dynasty, were not very good terms with the Israeli government at the time, till much later after 9-11. That's when the neocons came into office and influenced Bush White House because they're dual Israeli citizens. But, but during the Clinton administration, um, Al-Qaeda became the threat, became a primary threat, and after the embassy bombings, of course, came, became the present, um, number one. But the nexus between the Clinton administrations, the Bush administrations, was twofold. It was two opposite directions. So when Clark, who was the only holdover that was elected to, to become part of the Bush White House, he was actually neglected. And he would propose to Condoleezza Rice. He says, I want to, I want to uh, give primary reports to Bush himself. And I want to hold a, a meeting. Condoleezza Rice rejected that idea. And so he wrote up, a, I think, a three-page report uh, warning about the threat of al-Qaeda to the United States. Because at that time, from 98 to 2000, all the intelligence community knew about bin Laden, knew about their, that his wish to attack the United States. And in the summer of 2001, there was a, um, a presidential daily brief. And it's also known, infamously known as the August 6th presidential daily brief, where it warned, gleaned information from a radical fundamentalist al-Qaeda terrorist, um, Ahmed Rassam, who was part of a, another operation called the Millennium Bombing Plot, which is a multi-phase plot that was going to bomb LAX airport, attack U.S. Uh, hotels in Jordan, and attack Israeli uh, Israelis on the border, and to um, hijack a plane in, um, I think, Pakistan for the release of another terrorist called uh, Omar Saeed Sheikh, notorious terrorist, with deep intelligence ties with the Pakistan ISI. And so when they captured Rassam, he gleaned information about bin Laden wanting to attack the United States. This information went to this presidential debrief, along with older warnings about bin Laden wanting to hijack planes, and basically, Bush knew about this directive and basically told the CIA briefer, because Tenet didn't visit Bush at this time, basically told the CIA briefer, cover, did you cover your ass? That's what he said, B meaning that take the necessary steps to basically create this um, appearance of ignorance regarding what's about to happen. That's what I got from it. I don't know why. I think Bush was on a limited knowledge, to tell you the truth, because this would create uh, what is called, um, um, a, a, I forgot the, the term for it, where you only know just a little bit and you're ignorant about everything else. Oh, um, is it uh, plausible deniability? Plausible deniability. You're the man. Chris, thank you for your young mind. <laughs> so yes, plausible <laughs> deniability. We're on a level with the president, the vice president. They only know only so much because to know the details and remember they're the ones who have to go before the media and Bush is in the brightest bulb. So they only know so much to know the details would basically maybe one day make them slip. So they didn't want to know the details, but who knew the details? Well, I would argue the NSA, 
They were listening to phone calls. The CIA, they were monitoring the hijackers inside the United States. The Israelis, they were monitoring the hijackers in the United States. The Saudis were monitoring the hijackers in the United States. They knew the details, I think, right? They they heard phone calls. They read the emails. They, they knew where they lived, monitored who they were meeting. So they would know. But the president, vice president, which White House only knew superficially. That's it. That's all. Mm -hmm. um, but that presidential daily brief was the first instance where it brought to the president's attention that bin Laden wanted to attack inside the United States, not outside. That would involve the FBI. Why else did the FBI know about this? Because the CIA withheld that information from them as well as the NSA. So all, all this coming, I know it's very complex to hear this and multifaceted, but it's very important to know just the basics of this. And I hope that I'm not losing the audience too much or losing you. <laughs> no, it, um, it, it is a lot. Um, it is very expansive and a lot of things that growing up, I, I just, I had no idea about, and even things just talking to you right now, I, I'm learning, uh, still, um, gosh, um, Adam, we're at, I know I, earlier we, I had mentioned, um, about going two hours, we're almost at two and a half and I, I can keep asking you tons of questions. Um, I'm, I'm all for you, <laughs> but I, I actually want to end it here, um, okay. and I would love to. I would love to have the opportunity to interview again sometime in the future, because uh, again, we, we haven't even. I mean, we've. It seems like we've just scratched the surface, um, yeah. and we haven't even gotten to the actual day yet. Mm. Um, mm. But I, I, I believe that all the information that that you've mentioned here in this interview is of utmost importance and just understanding like how events uh, uh came to be um and I, I don't know if other i don't know if people really see it that way um i don't know if you have a comment on that if people kind of think about the things that uh, uh led up to that day i wish you're, you seem to be quite the optimist i'm a hopeless pessimist so the glass is half full with me no, it's unfortunate. And from my experience, yours could be very different than mine. But from my experience of being on viral media, very, very few people talk about what you're talking about, Chris, the geopolitics involved with the finer minutia details and regarding pre-intelligence of 9-11. And it's so, this is, to me, it's, it's the essence of 9-11, pre-intelligence. What did they learn and what they didn't share? And how did these people come to conduct these operations. All this plays a part. It's very, it, it has to be understood. In the proper context, it should be respected on. And when, after 9-11 happened, about the year 2002, 2003, we started noticing an uptick in the real, like, ridiculous theories. Now, this is not a charge on the whole 9-11 truth movement, and I hate to pick on them, but they are from the 9-11 truth movement, and it's a very small percentage now I would say it's basically utterly destroyed. Nobody really talks about them. I went to Ground Zero last year. I saw some people at um, the Truth Movement. I know some of those people from various over the years, and it was oh, maybe maybe 15 of them left. And years ago, 10 years ago, there was about 100, 200. They used to go there, no longer. And the reason why is this. When you keep propagating the same 
fringe material, no planes, no hijackers, living hijackers, mini nukes, CGI holograms. You learn nothing new because you're only learning from people that cater to your worldview. This is why I'm very anal when it comes to independent investigation and the, and the scientific method that's along with it. You have a duty as a human being to basically share information with your fellow man that can basically act on that information when it comes to criminality. We want to hold people responsible for certain crimes, but you can't hold anybody responsible when you believe something happened. And there's this great quote, and I sound like a broken record usually for people listening to this. There's a great quote by a forensic psychologist named E. Martin Schatz, who wrote the book, JFK Assassination, wrote the book, History Will Not Absolve Us. And the quote goes something like this. It's a long quote, but I'll break it down. The American people are allowed to believe anything but to know nothing because with knowledge, you can act on it. In other words, you can't go to court and say, I believe the hijackers are still alive. Well, the next step would be, how do you prove that? You can't. They're all dead. They killed on the plane crashes. So you can't act on it. You're, you're stuck in a state of paralysis. Now it's up to that person to basically correct those errors and learn information that doesn't cater to their prejudicial worldviews, whether it's religious, politically, racially, whatever. But if you're going by your own worldviews and you only look at certain information, where you're only looking at information that agrees with that worldview, even dismissing information, valid information that is opposite to that worldview. And so it took me years, Chris, to alleviate these human constructs. I'm an atheist, but I'm not an anti-theist like I used to be. Um, um, I don't vote, so I'm not politically uh, affiliated with any party. Um, racism, I don't, I don't believe in racism. In other words, I don't believe in, in looking at people through a black and white lens. I look at people through their culture and their moral aptitude. I see it as a much bigger, much bigger than what they see themselves. So uh, that took me a long time to basically get rid of. And basically what helped me along was the philosophy, the, 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 the philosophical uh, nature of Jiddu Krishnamurti, who basically said that we are a singular consciousness, but we're, we're basically too primitive to basically alleviate from the, the divisive human constructs to, to evolve and to treat one another. We're still barbaric. We're still primitive. We treat each other with the enemy. And so I'm glad that changed me. That changed me in a very key moment in my life. And um, it's it really, I, I, I'm so fortunate because I did come from a, a conspiracy background. I didn't believe a plane to hit the Pentagon, but it was short-lived because I took those properties and I played devil's advocate. I said, all right, what really happened at the Pentagon? And so I looked at the physical evidence, the eyewitness evidence, the analytical evidence, technical evidence, and yeah, flights are sort of did crash the Pentagon. But does that mean that I agree with the official narrative purport by the government? No, there's more to it. And we talked about in this in some parts of this conversation about those conspiracies involved. And to to understand that, what you have to look into um who these people were, who they were involved with, the intelligence agencies that may have gotten information from them. I mean, it's very it's very expensive, it's very big, but the government knows that. So in other words, we're fighting a war on two fronts here, Chris. One is a war for information by the federal government. 
and the war against disinformation uh, regarding these fringe conspiracies that hold us back not to learn the truth. And it basically, one is a good war, a fight for information. The other one is a time waster. And I wasted so much time arguing with people on Brown Media. And, you know, my co-host of the Dark and Richard Cox, you know, thankfully to him, he's probably one of the most important people I ever met in my life. He basically told me that, you know, arguing with these people is not, not productive for you. And he saw, he saw in me what I didn't see in me. Because I have self-security issues. I don't think I'm important. And he saw something in me that I didn't see. And he says that you should build on, you know, your knowledge of what you learned over the years. And he gave the idea for the pro- for the podcast, Dark and Hour. And I'm so glad for him. And, of course, my co-researcher, Nelson Martins, and others like Sean Russell, Darren Harvey. Uh, there's these two kids, Ben and Eric, from podcast for New American Center. They're brand new. Uh, they're starting to, you know, co- to expand on what I've been talking about, and they're probably going to do it better than I am. I'm hoping, because that's how you build a movement. My hope was to build these, to, to talk about this issue and to build viral media in the hopes that I reach somebody and that they take that information, they get a bigger audience, a bigger audience, and vice versa. Then you have a branch out effect. That's how you build a movement, a movement of action, not a movement of inaction. And regretfully, you know, We've had 21 years of inaction by the truth movement. It's unfortunate, but um, uh, it's a fact. Wow. Uh, Very well said, uh, Adam. And I really, really appreciate you giving me the time today. Um, We had never met. I I mean, I just reached out to you on a whim and uh, just thank you so much for uh, coming on and doing this. And I definitely... Um, yeah, I just, I really, really appreciate it. Um, and thank you so much for all the information. Um, really quick, but before we end it, uh, for people who want to, who want to, uh, get in touch with you, see the work that you do, what are the best places like your YouTube channel, uh, your medium page? Uh, I know you're on Twitter as well. I'm easy to find, by the way, thank you so much for having me on. I'll talk to anybody. And, you know, one thing I found out in time, regretfully, is that we have a lot of egos in this movement. And um, it's regretfully. I remember when I first started in 2006, when I first started with 9-11, I I barely had anybody to talk to. I really didn't. I felt alone. And I said that I would never do that. Uh, Two things I, I made a promise. One, I would never make any money from what I do. And two, I would reach out to anybody and talk to anybody. But uh, only on if they're on an honest platform and you come from an honest background. So I looked into you, found you to be you know honest enough and you're not you know somebody who's half cock crazed. So, uh, yeah, I'll give you the time for sure. And also, I'm very easy to find. I, I'm, I'm not afraid to put my real name out there. My real name is Adam Fitzgerald. And if you Google Adam Fitzgerald 9-11, I come right up. But if you want to make it easy, go to my Twitter page underscore Adam Fitzgerald. And I have on my pinned tweet all the links you need from my podcast, me and Richard Cox, The Darkened Hour, um, my WordPress, where I, I daily upload five to 10 files, hundreds of files almost weekly, every single day of the week. I file everything up there, all primary source material, not opinion name material, all information, declassified information, up uh, all at your disposal. 
I have over 5,700 entries there on my WordPress. My YouTube channel, which I, I almost lost, um, I have no strikes, thank God. So knock on wood. Um, <laughs> I have over 2,700 videos there. And growing playlist, I upload a video every single day. Information I share, I will share always links with you. I don't want you to believe what I have to say. I want you to research what I have to say, which I'm hoping for you to do. Because I don't want you to believe. I want you to know something. That's my real reward. My reward for doing this is not money. It's so that you can learn something, right? And also, um, my word, my medium, uh, my articles. Yeah, I have 117, which I'm surprised. Um, I start out very small. Um, they grew in time. And, of course, you happen to read the longest article I ever read, 93 Bombing. Yeah, uh, it's on Medium. And uh, all that is pinned to my tweet, as well as all the researchers who I find reputable and books that I've read over the years. I'm now uploading the books I've read over the years. I have over 160 books that I've read over the years regarding 9-11 uh, and the areas relating to it. I think I have more books on the coast and or anything. I, that's one of my other primary um, uh, loves and interests. But um, yes, I'm, I'm uploading all that stuff. And it's all at your disposal free. Wow, that's that's really awesome. Uh, thank you for that. I I'll even um, I'll include some of these links uh, in the sure. description of the episode as well. Thank you. Really. Um, and yeah, again, Adam, thank you very much, and thank you to everybody for listening. That's out there. My name is Chris. This has been Cheetash. Take care, everybody.